This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Okay. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together um, as we learn about the history of your church and the history of the tradition of Anglicanism and the theology of Anglicanism. We pray that uh, you would you would guide us into all truth. And uh, as a tradition, I pray that you would guide us into all truth. And that which is pleasing and acceptable to you, we would be able to retain and to express in this place. And that which is uh, needs to be jettisoned, that we would let that go as well. And uh, we thank you for this time together. pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Um, so just briefly, um, as we start, wanted to ask you about what you think confirmation is and, and why, uh, why we do it. I have, I have things to say, but just wanted to hear your own, your own reflections on it. Barb, you've got some ideas on it. <clears throat> well, only because I, I, mean, I went through confirmation in the Lutheran Church, mm. so I assume it's similar in yeah. some respects. Did you have a bishop? No, I yeah. did not have yeah. a bishop. So maybe same, similar and different, actually. Yeah. But go ahead and tell yeah. me, what was that experience like? What, what was the Well, I mean, it was, I was a kid, uh-huh. like middle school. So right. they did three years of one-week instruction mm-hmm. before you then were confirmed. Mm-hmm. And you had to go before the elders, and they gave you a little quiz and mm-hmm. asked you questions and stuff. So. Yeah. So, and we used, we just, all we used was Luther's short catechism, and we basically memorized right. all the questions and answers and the scripture that went along with it. The shorter one or the greater one? The shorter one. The shorter one, one. yeah. Yeah, I mean, we met junior high kids. So. Right, yeah. Apostles Creed, Lord's Prayer, Ten Commandments. That's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you in, in Hague orthodoxy, and mm-hmm. you check, yeah, what you believe, <coughs> and mm-hmm. if you can align, then maybe you'll be confirmed. Well, I think... Do you have any thoughts? I mean, I don't come from a background that has it, so yeah. my only idea is if it's uh, a tradition that does like baptism of children, it's mm-hmm. like the official like when you become adult, like acceptance of mm. that belief system and all the creed. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, <laughs> so I think there's like um, there's, there's kind of two ways of thinking about confirmation actually, and within the Anglican tradition, and I guess we're gonna call them more Catholic traditions. Um, so when confirmation began, actually, it began in a time in a time when um, bishops were the, um, the the chief pastor of every of every church, right? Yeah. But as the church began to become differentiated, and there were more churches in a city than the bishop could oversee, the, the bishop would over over would delegate uh, priests to in responsibility over those churches, uh, and then as baptisms would happen, the bishop would come along. Uh, and lay hands upon the infant or upon the adult con- convert uh, to confirm that the baptism had indeed happened. Mm. Uh, and there was actually also a blessing imparted in that confirmation. So at first, the question is, how long is it admissible to wait before confirmation happens, right? Um, but uh, sometime around the 9th, 10th century, somewhere in there, uh, things shift, and it becomes the opposite of that. It becomes a mature commitment to one's baptismal covenant. Um, and so that's actually what 
Council of Trent, re various Reformation traditions that retain confirmation, um, say that confirmation is. So it's actually, you know, as, as it has, has come to us, it actually has two meanings. One of them, as our catechism says, is that confirmation is a mature commitment to your baptismal covenant. So that's how you experienced it growing up, right? It's like you're baptized into this faith, uh, you're kind of coming midstream, as it were, and then you are eventually catechized into what that faith, the content of that faith mm -hmm. is, so you can own it for yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's definitely still part of what confirmation is. Um, it's, it's actually the, the critical, essential part of what confirmation is, which is why we do a lot of catechetical instruction. Um, it's why, and I'll talk about this in a minute, why we kind of updated our our process here at Ascension to include a sponsor element so that there's um, there's someone, a, a sort of mature Christian who will walk alongside of you and, and just kind of dialogue with you about what is what does it mean to sort of like convert your loyalties to Jesus? I mean, you, you guys are adult are adult I mean, Christians, and so immature Christians yourselves. So this will be, it will be pro forma exactly, but maybe a deeper immersion into what you already know to be true. Um, but then alongside of that, uh, the bishop who is the representative of the church uh, will come and actually lay hands on you, um, and and that that signifies a kind of blessing, a kind of fuller impartation of the Holy Spirit to. Uh, to, to live the Christian life. Um, it's, a, it's an extra measure of grace, right? That's the way we think about it. It is a sacramental rite. It's not a sacrament. It is a sacramental rite. Um, so we, the church has two sacraments that are given to it by Jesus, baptism and the Eucharist, of course. <clears throat> but we have these other rites that are their offices of the church or their offices of creation um, that, that come alongside of those rites. And they've they're, they're, they're always been understood to be channels or conduits of grace, Okay. Um, so confirmation is one of these, and so when the bishop lays hands on you, we really believe like some like there's a gift that's given, right, in that in that blessing. Um, so that's the other piece of confirmation. Um, so kind of something that you do for yourself and something that's done to you. Uh, and then also, you know, if we talk about like a third element, there's it's a formal way of kind of saying I'm Anglican, like this is my tradition, this is the way in which I follow Jesus, kind of owning that for yourself. So um, maybe those primarily those first two meanings, and then somewhat the third meaning as well. Um, so that's, when, that's kind of what this process is for. Um, and as we've updated it, so when I came uh, to Ascension two and a half years ago, our process was, okay, we hit Easter, and then our bishop's coming on Ascension Day. So within that period, let's like squeeze in this information that we need to impart to people, and then boom, you're confirmed, right? And to me, that has always felt very inadequate in terms of prepping people. So what I, what I suggested that we do was, um, and, and really, if you think about this process is analogous to people coming, become, moving from paganism to Christianity in the early church, uh, that process always took a year to three years, right? So I know that none of y'all are in that position now, but there is a, an analogous process of like really like meditating, thinking seriously about the faith that you are you're owning. Hey, Chicken, how you doing? Um, so all you've missed is I've just been explaining the, the meaning of confirmation. Um, and if you have questions about it, I'm happy to answer afterwards. Okay. So um, the process here at Ascension uh, is not quite a year. It's about eight months. Um, and really, most of that eight months has to do with the, the sponsor meetings, right? And you've already done this aspect of it. Um, so, uh, Chuyen actually kind of uh, took the opportunity. We had a, a baptismal process for adult candidates that um, also employed a sponsor component to it. So, it had a match each person with a sponsor. She's already been baptized for a year, but she took that opportunity to prepare that aspect of confirmation um, during that same period of time, which is pretty cool. 
Um, so Luann was her sponsor, and they, they walked through some materials that I prepared for them on, on various themes. So the, the confirmation process is kind of analogous to that baptismal process. We have two kind of modules of teaching, this, this one in May and then another one in October. And essentially the content of that is, like, number one, let's explore this tradition that we are participating in. Um, so tonight is more like history theology of that tradition. And then um, next week will be um, mostly an instructed Eucharist, but kind of an introduction to the liturgy, an introduction to, hey, are you, are you coming to this? Are you here for something else? No. That's cool. I'm sorry. Awesome. No, you're fine, man. You're fine. All I've been doing is explaining confirmation. So as I told Chien just now, like if you want more information afterwards, I'm happy to explain. But um, So um, where was I? I'm sorry. Right. So next week is the like mostly an instructed Eucharist, but kind of an introduction to the liturgy. Because um, the way that Anglicans think about theology is primarily scripture, but then there is this immersive practice that we do every week, which is the liturgy, which is patterned on scripture, um, but it's also formative in its own unique way, right? And so it, it shapes us. And so we, we have a, a principle that we call lex orandi, lex credendi. Uh, the law of belief is the law of prayer. So how we pray shapes how we believe, right? Um, and so... When we do theology, we, we do it like, you know, Presbyterians do theology like, you know, reasoning out of scripture. We do it reasoning out of scripture and the liturgy, right? It's those two things together. And so before we formulate our, our central concepts, we look at both those things together. Um, one emergent from the other, obviously, the scripture being the norming witness and then liturgy being um, a formative witness that comes alongside of scripture. Um, so that, that's kind of our tradition, those, those first two classes. And then we move into uh, the third week, uh, which is kind of a you know, an invitation to participate in the life of the church, uh, to use your gifts, to, to actually like think critically about what are your gifts, right? So we do a spiritual gifts inventory, then we look at the ministries of ascension, and we try to create some alignments there, at least to stimulate in your own thinking what might be the alignments between your gifts and what ascension needs. Um, and so to, it's kind of an invitation to go a little bit deeper in on that. Um, then uh, the, I think after that, we have three weeks of spiritual practices. So again, um, Anglicanism is really big on teaching people how to pray, like a huge, huge part of the liturgy, but it's also like a huge part of our devotional life that we, we pray um, not just by petition, we do that, um, but we also have a, a profound tradition, what we call the daily office, which is bringing the corporate life of worship on Sunday into your, uh, your, daily, your daily routines, your daily devotions. Uh, also, we, we emphasize things like fasting and um, giving away our money and also like um, contemplative prayer. Um, so things like this. Spiritual direction is another big piece. So the three kinds of uh, classes that are on, on those practices are first the daily office, then contemplative prayer, then spiritual direction. Um, but um, I, I'll talk more about that as we get to it. But that's, you know, that's a big chunk of what we're doing together in these class sessions. And then the final one is really what's the meaning of vows? Like what does it mean to actually belong somewhere? Right, to belong to this tradition, belong to this church, and just kind of an exploration of that. So, um, does everybody kind of get grasp the module part of the process? Mm. Okay. So then, if you're going to go on and uh, and actually be confirmed, then I'll pair I'll pair you with a sponsor. Um, the sponsor will kind of walk through with you um, these materials that I've created, which are on six themes. So there's six total meetings with a sponsor, uh, and the meetings are on what is the gospel. So how do we articulate that? How do we understand that um, from scripture? Um, and then also, then, um, how do we pray? Uh, and then the three, I think, the three critical places where it's most difficult for us to convert our loyalties to Jesus, sex, money, and power. And those are the places where we, we see that the will consistently misfires, and it's 
but we, it's really hard for us to, to give ourselves to Christ. Um, so three kind of weeks on that, or three meetings on that. And then the final one is mission. Like, what is, how do we express our mission, um, uh, the mission of the church and our own personal mission in devotion to Jesus? So that's kind of the process in a nutshell. Does that make sense to everybody? Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're interested and you walk through that process, then um, the, the bishop, uh, who's actually will be Bishop Grant in this case, who I think a lot of you know, he worships here on Sundays, will actually, um, he'll officiate the confirmations on the second Sunday of Advent, which I think is December 9th this year. So that's when it'll happen. And I'm still thinking through like what difference this process should make relative to the, to the, um, the confirmations. Like, one of the things I thought about was like, well, wouldn't it be really cool if like people were able to give like a short testimony about, you know, what this process has meant to them and that kind of stuff. So I don't know. It's something to think about, and um, I'll I'll probably dialogue with with you guys and ones of you who are interested in confirmation about what that might look like, what difference that might make. Um, yeah. So tonight um, our goal is to really just, as I said, investigate history and theology of Anglicanism, and it's you know. I apologize for the kind of fire hose that this will be inevitably, um, but I've tried to sort of make it a bit more accessible by giving you this sheet that's kind of like, here are the big uh, headings that we're going to be covering, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so the first thing to, to think about is that um, Anglicanism, so all right, let me, let me just start here actually. Everyone who follows Jesus follows Jesus in a particular way. Okay, there's no way of following Jesus that's like, you know, independent of culture and tradition. Um, so, you know, C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity is like, if you abstract from all the different ways of following Jesus, you can isolate some tenets that are critical. And you can't be, you can't really be a Christian, um, or at least an Orthodox Christian who is who believes like the kind of mainstream of what Christianity is without believing these core things, right? But to actually believe those and to walk them out means belonging to a particular kind of community following Jesus in a particular way. So Anglicanism is one of these ways. And one of the things that's, that's critical to understand or grasp about Anglicanism is that it is a particularly ancient form of following Jesus. So it goes, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a form of Christianity that comes out of England. Um, so that, that word, Ecclesia Anglicana, means the church in England. That's all it means. Um, so it's, it's a church that goes um, all the way back to the third century, um, most likely, possibly even the second century. Um, there's a conference called the Lambeth, the Lambeth Conference that happens once every 10 years, and it's basically all the Anglicans all over the world coming together to talk. Um, and, and usually it's to solve particular issues that are relevant for the entire communion. Uh, but one of those Lambeth conferences in 1930 described the Anglican Church as a fellowship in the one holy Catholic and apostolic Church of Christ, which I think is like, it's about basically a really broad definition, but one that's really helpful. It is, we are part of that creedal church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of Christ. And we're a fellowship within that. We're a way of expressing that. Um, and it's a spirituality and a tradition that expresses, stretches almost all the way back to the apostles. Uh, the first kind of mention that we have of it um, is a, second, is a cent- second century king who petitioned the, the Roman bishop at that time, who was named Pope Eleutherius, uh, for instruction in Christianity. So we know, at least back in the second century, there's interest in Christianity in England. Uh, but we know that the church is established by at least the third century because its first martyr is in 304. It's a guy named St. Aidan, um, who actually, you know, one of the wonderful things about this, uh, the, the nave or sanctuary is how it catechizes, right? I mean, it's, it's a, the shape of it, the very shape of it 
preaches and teaches Christianity, or at least it makes it a lot easier to preach and teach Christianity. So if you look um, at the sort of like above where the pews are, there's like a row of windows. You've seen those, right? And they're all like stained glass and they all have figures in them. Um, Well, uh, those are called the clear story windows. That's the clear story level of the church. And uh, all of those are saints, right? And if you go, as you walk into the, to the sanctuary, on the, on the top, the first one that, that on the top left side uh, is St. Aidan. So the first martyr of the English church. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's you're kind of like expressing it as you walk into the church. This is, this is our progeny. This is our, um, our forebears in the faith, right? These people who have come before us. And St. Aidan is kind of like the, the beginning of that. Um, so he was martyred during the Diocletian persecution, which is one of the few very widespread persecutions of the faith in the first four centuries of the church. Um, there were lots of sporadic persecutions in different places, but this is one of the first like kind of universal ones. Um, so he was martyred during that, um, and in kind of a beautiful way. Like he actually uh, he he met a priest and so admired his way of life that he converted to the faith, and then kind of like put himself in the place of that priest to, to receive the punishment. Um, it's kind of a beautiful thing. And we know that by 314, the church was organized enough. I mean, it was, it was sufficiently organized that it could send three representatives to the Council of Arles, which was convened in order to deal with the people who had defected during this persecution. You know, so if you had people who, you know, had renounced Christ uh, under, under the threat of persecution, you have to figure out, like, well, what do we do with you now, right? You've apostatized, and now you want to go back into the church. Well, how do we handle that? So this, this council was convened to deal with that, and the British church was, was organized enough to send three representatives. So, um, all right, so that's, that's uh, the, the er, sort of earliest foundations of the, of the English church, and now I have to, like, hop over a bunch of centuries to talk about the Reformation, <laughs> because there's just, there's too much history. Um, I, I think it's important to, to, I mean, and I can talk about this a little bit, a little bit, uh, a, a little bit greater length later, um, but there's an important kind of monastic background to English Christianity um, there's an important um, struggle between church and state that's, that's uh, part of even Anglican history um, after the Reformation that's important to talk about. There's a strong kind of university and teaching tradition that emerges within Anglican Christianity. Um, Cambridge and Oxford are two of the earliest universities in all of Europe. Um, so obviously there's, there's, uh, there's a lot there that could be unpacked, um, which has bequeathed to Anglicanism um, a very strong emphasis on... Um, on, on intellectual formation, on teaching, on teaching the faith. Um, but I, all of that is, you know, I mean, it's kind of got to jump over it for now. But I'd be happy to talk about it at greater length. Um, yeah, so continuity and discontinuity in the Reformation. Um, and that's, you know, I, I think I have on there continuity and discontinuity with the Continental Reformation. Um, but I really mean, you know, the overall Reformation. Like, what, what, how is Anglicanism like and unlike what's happening in the various Reformations that happen on the continent? So there's an initial rift that is elicited by Henry's desire to get a divorce. Like, we all kind of know the story, right? Um, that he's married to Catherine of Aragon, who is the wife of his deceased brother, Arthur. And in order to marry her, Pope Clement VII gave him a dispensation. And uh, she only gave him female heirs. And he really wanted a male heir. And he, he came to think that his marriage was cursed because he had married his brother's widow. And that was unlawful. And he'd gotten a dispensation for it, but the Pope wasn't actually fit to give him that dispensation, wasn't actually able to. So he petitioned to get another dispensation to annul his marriage and marry somebody else. Uh, And this was politically complicated for the Pope. Um, So he denied it. So he got his own canon lawyers to get this thing figured out, and he got himself a divorce, right? Okay, that's a sordid story, 
Okay, that's a sordid story about, about Henry. But it's really only the external, uh, the externals of what's happening within this Reformation. Um, at the same time that all this is happening in England, politically, uh, there is at the same time a continental Reformation, which is doctrinal, uh, in full swing. And England is also participating in that same ferment. The, the, the Reformation that's happening on the continent is, uh, is critical, first and foremost, I think, of moral abuses in the church. Um, there's a strong kind of moral critique of what's happening in Latin Christianity. Uh, I think it's important to call it Latin Christianity, by the way, because the idea of Roman Catholicism doesn't emerge until there is a Reformation to respond to, right? It forecloses certain options of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, there are several cardinals, uh, Reginald Pohl and uh, Gasparo Contarini being the two most prominent among them, who espouse Reformation doctrines about justification by faith, for instance. Um, but those, uh, that becomes, you know, that's hived off, right? You can't be Catholic and believe those things anymore after a certain point, the Council of Trent, because... You know, the, 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 the Roman Catholic Church is having to define itself over against the Reformation. So the uh, church historian Yaroslav Pelikan describes the Reformation as a tragic necessity. Um, there's things that are happening both morally and doctrinally that have to be revised in order to be reformed according to Scripture. Um, and, of course, when the Catholic Church responds to that, it, it takes away those specific options, um, which is for better and for worse, um, I think. So... Um, Right, so I think the, the first and foremost thing is that there is a, a profound kind of moral critique. And the moral critique, you know, it, it, it uh, congeals around several different things. Um, one of them is there's this, uh, from the 11th century onward, a, an insistence that, that clergy be celibate. Prior to that, celibacy is optional. It's, it's preferred, but it's optional and uh, in, in different places. Actually, there's, there's a, I would say, a plurality of opinions or... Um, requirements in different places. Some bishops require it, some bishops don't. Um, but by the 11th century, there's a pope named Gregory VII who insists upon it for all clergy. So it becomes a universal necessity in the 11th century. Um, but of course, it's very laxly enforced and there's a kind of knowing, kind of winking acceptance of what's called clerical concubinage, right? So it's like you have a secret wives or you know, priests that are going to brothels and so forth, right? So that's, that's happening consistently over the course of these centuries, and we know that because there's all of these reformers who are consistently trying to get people to actually practice celibacy and failing miserably. Um, so the, the reformers look at Scripture and they say, like, what's wrong with marriage? You know, like marriage is fine. Paul says it's fine. So why are you enforcing that on, um, on, on the clergy? And moreover, like right here, it mentions Peter's mother-in-law, right? So like one of the apostles is married, you know what I mean? So like, why are we requiring clergy to be celibate? Okay, so that's one, that's one kind of critique. Uh, another one is the practice of simony. And simony is named after the, uh, Simon Magus in the book of Acts, who attempts to buy um, Peter's power from him, right? So this is uh, the, the, the well-attested kind of practice of people buying church office, right? So typically what will happen is you have a noble... You know, the, the practice of primogeniture is alive and well, so all of your estate goes to your, and your office actually goes to your oldest son, and then you've got to figure out what to do with the rest of your children, right? So if they're daughters, you marry them off, but if they're sons, you've got to figure out how to give them, like, a living. So one of the kind of best ways to do this is to put them in the church, right, whether they're Christians or not, right? So um, what you do is you buy them, buy them an office where they're going to get income from tithes, right, rents and ties and that kind of thing at an early age. This gives them kind of an annuity stream, right, to get them through education and early part of their lives. I mean, if this sounds gross, that's because it's gross, right? But it's like, this is a, a widespread practice uh, of simony that happens. Because of simony, there's also a practice of pluralism. So it's like, you've got 
you know, you can buy up multiple offices for your, for your son. And then like out of the money that comes from that office, you hire a curate to kind of do the basic pastoral responsibilities. But the, like the curate is not, not paid very much. So, you know, might be a drunk or might, might be illiterate. Like, I mean, there's a lot of possible potential abuses that come from this. Uh, and also the person who's the, you know, the on paper, the priest of this particular parish, like never is like literally never there. Right. Um, like never, maybe never in his life there. Um, then you've got these, you know, beginning in the 14th century particularly, you've got these Renaissance popes who are notorious, like notorious, terrible people, um, murderers, adulterers, um, you know, really more like um, worldly rulers than like priests. Um, so, you know, the most notorious of these are Alexander VI, who actually had orgies in the Lateran Palace, um, had, you know, tons of illegitimate children. There's actually like Netflix series created about these guys, which I haven't watched because I'm imagining just how graphic it's going to be, right? But the, the Borgias, right? The Borgias were the family that Alexander VI came from. Um, and, and so he's just this notorious guy who's bringing aspersions upon the name of Christ. Uh, Julius II is another one. Um, Julius II, he wasn't a lecher, but he was like a conqueror. That's like how he saw himself. And he thought, if I'm the spiritual ruler of Christendom, I need a kingdom to match that, right? I mean, a temporal, temporal ruler to, to match being a spiritual ruler. So he raises an army and goes and conquers all this territory and creates what's, what was called the Papal States, which lasted all the way until the 19th century when Italy and Germany took him back, okay, when, as they were consolidating national identity. Um, Leo X, who was Pope when Martin Luther was writing, uh, when he was elected, he famously said, since God has given us the papacy, let us enjoy it, um, which is, you know, kind of gross. But um, so uh, Desiderius Erasmus, who was a, ref a Catholic reformer at the same time that Luther was writing, he ultimately didn't leave the church, but was, you know, uh, engaged in some of the same kinds of critiques of the church that Luther was, uh, lampooned one of these popes, Julius II, in a play that's called Julius Ex Exclusus. And I I really like this play because it's, I mean, Erasmus's great gift was satire. I mean, he was an, an, an incredible satirist. Um, but in Julius Exclusus, after Julius's death, he finds himself at the heavenly gates, and he's pounding at them, seeking entry. And uh, Peter, uh, who's holding the keys to the gate, says, it's a good thing our gates are of adamant, right? They're made of steel. Otherwise, this one, whoever he is, would have kicked them in. He must be a giant of some sort, a general of the armies, a stormer of cities, and Julius has this elaborate crown on that says PM for Pontifex Maximus, but uh, Peter suggests that it must mean Pestiferous Maximus, right? You know, the most, uh, the most, the biggest pest, the biggest pest right? Um, so Peter tells Julius that holiness is necessary to enter heaven's gates, not pomposity. And Julius says that no one has ever called him anything else but most holy, and that he has a thousand bulls to prove it. And Peter smartly replies, then you'd better ask those flatterers of yours to let you into heaven, because they're the ones who made you so holy. They provided the holiness, now let them provide the bliss. And then Peter concludes, what sort of unnatural arrangement is it that while you wear, while you wear the robes of a priest of God, under them you are dressed in the bloody armor of a warrior, right? So this, this sense of, you know, the, the notoriousness of these so-called leaders of the church, right? These popes of the church, um, which were bringing aspersion upon the name of Christ, um, was, a, was a big piece of the moral critique of the reformers. So any questions on any of that so far? So I think that's the, that's the kind of most broadly shared critique of Latin Christianity that's, that's happening um, during the 16th century period. And it's shared not just in the continent, but also in England, right? So, you know, one of the, 
I guess there's been, again, Netflix series about this or whatever, but you know, the, the, the archbishop who preceded Thomas Cranmer, who was the first kind of Reformation archbishop of the Church of England, was a guy named Cardinal Wolsey. And he was like the most notorious, right, of these kinds of you know, uh, corrupt clergy um, during this time period. All right, so um, but the Reformation doesn't just take aim at the, the sort of moral teaching of the church. It also takes aim at the teaching of the church on a variety of issues. So during, um, really beginning around the 13th, 14th centuries, there came to uh, be understood uh, a way of thinking about the authority of the church uh, as being not just scripture, but also alongside of that, the tradition of the church as sort of like two equal and... Um, not opposite. I'm trying, what's the word I'm thinking of? Like just kind of two equal sources of, revel, of divine revelation, right? So it's like, you know, tr- the tradition comes to stand on its own. It's, it's not no longer just something that interprets the scripture that we should listen to. It becomes its own sort of source of tradition. Um, sorry, its own source of revelation alongside of the scriptures. And the, and the reformers actually went back to the church fathers and they said, well, the church fathers all say that scripture is the, the supreme authority of the church. And so we, we need to critique that. We need to say, like, the tradition is in service of the scriptures rather than scripture being in service of the tradition. Um, so that was, the, that was a, a huge piece of the critique in terms of the teaching. Um, there's also this profound emphasis on teaching, preaching, and worship in the vernacular rather than Latin. I suppose it's not necessarily a doctrinal teaching. It's more of a practical thing. But um, when you begin to think about how does one actually form the faithful, like, how can you do that if you're speaking a language that they don't understand, right? It becomes a form of magic rather than a form of, of worship for the people. Um, and you could see this already in the liturgy as well. So, you know, at the high point of the liturgy, what would happen is the priest would elevate the host, right? And, and uh, a bell would ring so that people would know to, like, jump in and look, right? Because that's, that's their spiritual act of worship, right? As opposed to actually communing, which is, so when the reformers began to understand, like, how do we reform the liturgy so that it, it includes all the faithful, they, they, they um, preferred the language of communion because that's what they read in 1 Corinthians 10. When Paul says, you know, this bread that we break, is this not a koinonia, a communion, or a fellowship, or a participation in the body of Christ, right? This cup that we bless, is it not a koinonia? A, a communion or participation or fellowship in the blood of Christ, right? So it was, a, it was actually a real presence theology that the reformers mostly espoused, with the possible exception of Zwingli. Um, but it was an insistence upon the, the only way in which this happens is when the, the body of the faithful participates together. And so there were a whole host of, you know, I, I would say aberrant practices that grew up around this kind of more magical understanding of what's happening in, in the Mass. Um, like, for instance, you know, you would like basically would create... Um, an annuity uh, with a bequest at, at the end of your life um, to, to fund a chapel. And that chapel would be staffed by a bunch of priests whose whole job was to say mass for you by themselves, privately, right? You don't actually have a body of people who are praying this with them. It's just like, your responsibility is pray for me when I die, right? And to like, because it's building up good works that you can then transfer to my account. And that's gross because, it, I mean, it's actually, it's, it's so um, contrary to the spirit of what the scriptures say that communion ought to be. So the reformers are very critical of this. Okay, um, then, but, you know, the teaching, preaching, and worship in the vernacular is all part of this. How can we form the faithful unless they understand what's happening, unless we can teach them in their own language? Um, justification by faith. Uh, so um, this, is a, this is a harder one to, to grasp. Because I don't think there's anybody in, in, the, uh, in the church, I don't want to say anybody, but, but there's hardly anyone who, who thought that the way that you get to heaven is by your good works, by, like, by, by the merits that you can present to God and say, 
this is the reason why I deserve to get into heaven. Everyone understands that it's the sacrifice of Jesus that makes possible our, um, our, our salvation. And, and yet, at the same time, there were teachings that had, had become prominent in the church that, uh, that could give rise to that misunderstanding. And so the, the, the criticism is, no, the only, the only thing that, uh, that, that connects us to Christ, that unites us to Christ, is faith. That's how we are justified. That's how we receive the, uh, the good news, actually, that we are righteous in Jesus before God. Um, and so that, that teaching became really prominent. Uh, and then, you know, as I've already mentioned, it's a, there's a, a critique of the way that the sacraments, and particularly the Eucharist, are understood um, in, the, in the medieval period that, that the Reformers are, criti- are criticizing. So this is, um, I think, all of these are areas where you find continuity um, in the Continental Reformation and in the, the Anglican Reformation. Um, so Henry uh, elects in 1533 or 4, I forget which one it is, he elects Thomas Cranmer after Wolsey dies. He elects Cranmer as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And, uh, and Cranmer is a pretty amazing guy. Um, he is a piping hot reformer. I mean, he's very animated by the faith of the Reformation, but he's got this incredible knack for diplomacy and a close personal relationship with the king. And this is important because Henry is like a little hot-headed, um, in case you don't know anything about him. Um, he put a lot of people to death. Uh, people that were his favorites at one point, he, he soured on and then would have them put to death. Um, so, uh, uh, and Henry's vision was to be a... Uh, a non-papal Catholic, right? His vision was, I'm just going to have the jurisdiction be in England. And now, again, didn't get to talk anything about the medieval period. But there is a back and forth about who gets to make decisions about the church in the, in the medieval period. Um, and the sort of dominant perspective is that it's, it's kind of by local jurisdiction, right? The Pope doesn't have the kind of sovereign authority that he comes to have later on. Mm. Um, the way in which that comes into being is through the efforts of Gregory VII. I already mentioned that guy is the one who enforced clerical celibacy across the board. Yeah. There were a bunch of other things too, right? So in the Holy Roman Empire, which is a kind of vestige of the earlier forms of Christendom that begin in the 4th century, uh, it gets revived under Charlemagne in the 9th century, um, the, em- the emperor said, I have the right to elect all my own bishops, right? So he would be the one to select the bishops. And Gregory said, nope, that's my job, right? So there's a big kind of back and forth between who gets to decide, right? So Henry is actually participating in a centuries-long controversy, right? He's saying, like, no, I'm just, I, I'm just asserting what is my own sovereign right. Um, so I want to be a Catholic. I don't want to compromise Catholic doctrine. Um, I, wanna, I just want to get, ri- get rid of this tyrant in Rome, right? Um, so that's kind of his vision, and Cranmer's vision is, is like, shall we say, slightly different than that. Um, it's not that Cranmer doesn't want to be Catholic, but he wants to be Reformed Catholic. He wants to have a Catholicism that's been purified of all the crazy things that had emerged in the preceding centuries, um, some, of the, some of which I've already mentioned. So this is actually a really tough thing to do because Henry kind of tries to double down on a lot of this stuff. He passes a bunch of articles, like the six articles, like, and, and the six articles you know, insist upon things like clerical celibacy. And he says, like, if, if the person doesn't do this, then put him to death, right? I mean, it's really, like, extreme, you know, kind of extreme punishments. But so somehow Cranmer manages to keep his head because he's, he's got this real knack for diplomacy and, again, a close personal relationship with the king. So he's able to get, to get through, like, a lot of these reformational priorities and actually even persuade Henry of some of them. Um, and at the same time, because the, the, Re, the Reformation is moderate and it's, it's um, you know, and the fact that it's guided in a very specific way... Um, is able to uh, retain, among the Reformed churches, Anglicanism is able to, to retain a liturgy that is explicit and clear. 
Um, it's not, you know, it's like Presbyterians continue to have a liturgy, but it's just suggestive. It's like, at this point, you should pray a prayer, right? I mean, but the prayer is to be extemporaneous. Whereas Anglicans have, from our outset, always had a liturgy that's explicit with prayers that were written that come from the history of the church. So, for instance, like Cranmer was an incredible, he's a brilliant guy, an incredible student of historical liturgies, the liturgies of the West and the East. So he, there's elements, the, the, the colic for purity, which is the, one of the first things we pray in the liturgy, as, as we, in the liturgy of the Word, comes from the 11th century Leonine Missal. Um, the Great Thanksgiving, which he, which he puts in there, comes from the 3rd century liturgy of Hippolytus. So there's like these beautiful prayers of the church that are really sturdy and ancient that Cranmer um, brings into the, the Holy Communion, into the daily office. Um, and so, so, so Cranmer retains this liturgy. He, re- he retains the apostolic order of bishops, priests, and deacons. We call it the apostolic order because it does go all the way back to the time of the apostles. It's not absolutely clear in Scripture that we should have bishops, priests, and deacons, Right? Not, not clear. It's a big, long-standing debate between Anglicans and Presbyterians about whether or not the word for presbyter or priest and the word for bishop in Scripture are the same thing, right? I mean, I mean, it's, they're different words, but do they refer to the same office? Um, and so Scripture is not 100% transparent. But what is clear is that by 107 AD, you have a bishop, Ignatius, who is arguing for this apostolic order of bishops, priests, and deacons. So the way that Anglicans initially argue for this, or Richard Hooker, for instance, says, look, this is not of the essay of the church. This isn't like, if you, if you don't do this, then you no longer have a church. But it is of the bene essay of the church. It's for right. the well-being of the church, that we, that we order the church in this way. Um, that there is a wisdom here that we dispose of at our peril in ordering the church this way. Um, so, but we retain that apostolic order. We retain some monastic emphases uh, that, you know, again, I didn't get to talk about that, but our daily office, right, the morning and evening prayer, retains a kind of monastic flavor to uh, Anglican Christianity. And then, uh, and then we'll talk about in a minute um, a really high view of the sacraments, right? Um, our Articles of Religion, which is our kind of confessional statement from the 16th century, um, which is still relevant to us as a as the ways that the decisions that we made on the particular controversies of the 16th century, right? So as, as Christianity stood in the 16th century, here's how Anglicans decided these questions. I think they were rightly decided. Now, the question of whether or not they still apply to Roman Catholics and Presbyterians and Baptists, like, that's an open question, right? Because, the, because all of those traditions have also migrated from their 16th century, like, the place they were in the 16th century. And so have Anglicans, frankly, right? So it's like, you know, on, on these particular controversies, this is how they were decided. Um, but in that, it says that the sacraments are not mere badges only, meaning like mere signs, but they are effective channels of the grace of God, right? Um, so so we, we're insistent upon a real presence of Christ and a real communion between Christ and the believer, and not just the believer, but the believer within the context of the body of Christ, right? It's the community of faith um, that, that is actually brought into relationship with Christ through these sacraments. Um, so that high view of the sacraments was retained as well. But at the same time, you know, the Reformation teachings on justification by faith, on the supreme authority of Scripture, the suppression of these various practices which were understood to be idolatrous, um, were all advanced. And especially after Henry died, his successor, Edward VI, Cranmer was able to get a lot of these things passed through. So um, because of this kind of, I mean, I would call it a balanced Christianity that that Anglicanism enshrines in some way that, that takes seriously the, the benefits the Reformation brought but didn't jettison everything, didn't throw the baby out in the bathwater. Um, has, we've never really seen ourselves as Protestant in our core identity. And of course, we protest against all doctrines and practices that are contrary to the scriptures. 
Um, but rather, in our, in our sort of core identity, we're Reformed Catholic or Evangelical Catholic. It's, a, it's the putting together of, of things that were artificially separated at the Reformation. Um, we're a church that seeks to retain all that's best in the tradition and to be faithful in all things to Holy Scripture. Sometimes Anglicans have tried to articulate this as being we're a via media, we're a middle way between extremes, um, which is not helpful because what, what that, well, I mean, I think it is helpful, but, but it's, it's, it has limitations because what, what it can suggest is a kind of fence-sitting or lukewarmness. But I don't think that's what it is. I think what it is is Justin Martyr in 150 A.D. wrote, a, wrote his first apology, and in that he says, everything good and beautiful belongs to us. Right? So all that is like most noble and most beautiful and most worth retaining in the tradition, we retain. At the same time, we seek in all things to be faithful to Scripture. Right? Um, so I think that kind of evangelical Catholic or Reformed Catholic emphasis is, in my mind, like the greatest thing about the greatest gift that Anglicanism brings to Christendom. Uh, there's a 19th century bishop of New York named John Henry Hobart, and his Episcopal slogan, I think, stands for Anglicanism as a whole, evangelical faith and apostolic order. So those, these priorities that get put together as kind of evangelical Catholicism or Reformed Catholicism are, I think, what we're about. Um, all right, any questions about any of that? It's a lot of, a lot of info. <laughs> or comments? Make comments? Just engage with that material? No? Really? Okay. What do you think about that slogan? Got it all down, right? What do you think about yeah. that slogan? Does that, does that, do you gravitate towards that? Are you suspicious of that? What is, what is the consensus in the room? Which one? The evangelical Yeah, evangelical Catholic, Reformed Catholic, or the John Henry Hobart's uh, Episcopal slogan, motto. I mean, personally, it's hard, the, the, because Catholic means something else to everyone else when you say yeah. it, 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 it would be complicated to say that to someone right. without them understanding the context of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think it is a bit in-house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in some ways, what's actually really beautiful um, in being in a post-Christian context, which we are, right, mm-hmm. um, is, that, is that we're all kind of starting at ground zero. So a lot of these controversies don't necessarily arise, except insofar as we have to explain to people why the church is divided. Right, yeah. um, mm-hmm. but I think um, I think to me what Catholic <laughs> means is not a denomination, like not at all. Right, it is just Christ's Church. That's what we profess in the creed, mm-hmm. and well, so that's what it means. That's what it means. That's right. What it means. Yeah, yeah. But I think yeah, like you say, most people associated, and now almost as much of a problem is the term evangelical. Yes, yeah, because yeah. people mm-hmm. absolutely category yeah. that means that politics. Well. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 A very specific and, in so, my view, odious form of politics. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure these are. Yeah. I'm not sure these work like outside of a kind of shared experience or framework. Um, so that's that's a fair point. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, right. All right. So let, let me talk uh, about two lasting contributions that Thomas Cranmer offered to the Anglican tradition as a whole. The first one is the Book of Common Prayer, which is the next thing on our list, and then the 39 Articles of Religion. Um, the, the, the Book of Common Prayer um, has been described by one of its scholars, a guy named Charles Heffling, uh, uh, in this way. He says, this is, why the book of, this is why the prayer book exists in the first instance, so that God may be worshipped decently and in order. Whatever further importance this text 
may have is rooted in the fact that it has been so used continuously from the 16th century to the present. That being said, worship according to the Book of Common Prayer has at the same time made a difference, humanly speaking. It was Winston Churchill who observed that we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. The same is true of liturgies. Using the Book of Common Prayer has been a species of religious training or spiritual formation for those Christians who since 1549 have worshipped in and as, and as the church is known today as Anglican. So there is a whole constellation of, of worshipping Christians across the world who owe their self-understanding, their worship, their, um, their sense of, I mean, in some, in some sense, their real sense, their sense of doctrine, um, understanding of who God is, um, to this prayer book, right? To this, this kind of foundational document. Um, I was talking to somebody about this this week. Um, that uh, So I, I was Presbyterian for about a decade. And as I became Anglican, um, the liturgy shaped me in such a way that actually I came to understand God differently. Um, I came to see that the justice of God under the influence of the liturgy is not primarily, it is this, it's not, but it's not primarily this, the justice of a judge who adjudicates right from wrong and then assigns penalty and, and reward, but as a perfecting justice, a righteousness that makes righteous, right? So, so that the way that we understand God's justice is in the context of his character, right? The character of one whose, whose central property is always to have mercy, as the prayer of humble access says. And so when we understand it that way, it's like God is really for us, right? It's that Lutheran prerogative of we have a God who is gracious. We have a God who's for us and who longs for us to become his people, the people who can represent him. And so the formation that we receive in, through the liturgy is, is primarily, I think, a vision of who God is that makes it possible for us to love and worship and desire to, um, to, to, to spread the glory of his name. Um, so I, I think there is this kind of profound formation that happens through this particular liturgy. Um, so the Book of Common Prayer is, uh, is um, essentially what gives shape to both our central liturgy, which is Holy Communion on Sundays, but it's also the place where we find our daily office, um, which is the, the kind of corporate prayer brought into daily devotion. Um, and then also all of the pastoral offices of the church. So the, the liturgy of holy matrimony, the liturgy for funerals, um, the liturgy for penitence, people who are, are uh, practicing confession. Um, all kinds of things we find in there. Also the ordinals in there. So that which is uh, that the bishops use in order to ordain priests and deacons and other, other bishops. Um, all that's kind of in this one document. So the question is, like, where does all that come from? Um, and so if you go back to the medieval period, in order to celebrate the Mass, um, which, by the way, if you guys, do you guys know about this term, the Mass? I know, like, Catholics have the Mass, right? Anglicans also sometimes describe our worship service on Sunday as the Mass. And the reason for that is because the word Mass simply comes from the last line of the Roman liturgy, or the Latin liturgy, which is ita missa est, um, go, it is sent. And that means the body, the faithful, are sent. So it comes from that central missional sending priority of the, of the liturgy. Um, so that's why I think it's completely appropriate to use the word mass. It's not normal for us, um, but the first Book of Common Prayer in 1549, when it describes the service of Holy Communion, it says, it says the service of Holy Communion commonly called the mass, right? Because that's that's just what it's called, right? And from one point of view. So three kind of words we could use to describe it the Holy Communion, or four words actually, Holy Communion, the, uh, the Eucharist, um, the Mass, or the Lord's Supper. All of those are kind of used interchangeably within Anglican circles to describe what we're doing on Sunday morning because all of them draw from different priorities 
uh, a different term terminology for describing this in the scriptures, right? The Eucharist comes from when Jesus takes the bread and he gives thanks. Eucharisteo, that's the Greek word for that. I give thanks. Um, so the Eucharist comes from that, um, the, the, the last supper that Jesus gives us, which is patterned on uh, Passover meal. Um, communion comes from that, that line in Paul where he says the, the cup that we break, the cup that we bless and the, the bread that we break is a communion in the, uh, the, the body and blood of Christ. Uh, Lord's Supper refers to actually the whole, the whole shape of the Passover meal that Jesus gives us. Uh, and, and we understand explicitly because the Bible does that, that what we do here on Sunday is actually a repetition of that central meal. Um, and then what was the other one? That's the other one. And then Mass is, refers to the, the last line of the liturgy, the sending function, what, what this shapes us for, which is mission. Um, okay, so um, sorry for that aside, but, you know, sometimes it's helpful. Um, so, but in order to celebrate the Mass in the medieval period or to pray these fixed-hour prayers like the daily office or to officiate at any pastoral rite like confession or funerals in the medieval period, a priest would have to have a bunch of different books, okay, like you have to have a breviary, and you'd have to have a pie, and an ordinal, and a missal, and all these books, and they're all in Latin, and they're all different in different places. Okay, so you know if you're in Salisbury in England and in London, then you have different books, and they're all in Latin, and you have to have a bunch of different ones in order to do the mass right. So Cranmer's brilliant idea is to collect all of these books and put them all in one place, and then to select from from the many one use um, as normative, right, for the whole country, and then to translate the whole thing into English. So this is, this is a, you know, it's a, it's a unique thing. It never happened to that point. Um, but the prayer book also, at the same time that it's doing all of these things, it's, you know, collecting all the books, putting them in one place, selecting one use and making that normative, translating the whole thing into English. It's also streamlining those rites and reforming them, right? So Cranmer is looking at all the different liturgies in the history of the church, not all of them. He didn't know about all of them, but as many of them as he had access to. And then, uh, and then putting them all together in a liturgy that is saturated in Scripture, um, so, so that's kind of what the prayer book does. Uh, and and Cranmer's, Cranmer's big emphasis, and I think this is part of what he shares with the Reformation as a whole, is that he wanted the whole nation praying communally together again, right? So remember I said that uh, as Latin ceased to be the vernacular language of the church, but it, retain, it retained its church, churchly usage, people just <coughs> had no idea what was happening anymore, right? The priests themselves typically had no idea. They just memorized the thing in Latin and recited it out loud. Um, and so, you know, you, you, it became more and more like a spectacle or a kind of a magic rite. Uh, and Cranmer's, Cranmer's emphasis was to get people praying together again, understanding what they were praying, and really becoming immersed more deeply into it. Um, so that's why it's called the Book of Common Prayer, right? We're doing this together. We're doing this in common. Um, and he retained some of the monastic emphases of the church. I mean, the, you know, if you think about the way that Benedictine monks pray, they pray these fixed hours during the day, Right? Uh, they and their their prayers that um, that are written out and they uh, they involve you know scripture readings and repetition of the psalms things like that. So Cranmer took these offices and collapsed them. Right. So the the first there's seven of them during the day. So we took the first three and put them all into morning prayer. Hmm. And he took the last four and put them into evening prayer. And that became this kind of central uh, daily devotion. Um, yeah. And so together these are called the daily offices. Um, all right, so Cranmer uh, creates the first prayer book in 1549, and then it goes through a series of revisions. There's one in 1552, 59, 1603, and then 1662. Um, I say this not because you know you need to know all the revisions, but just to say that this is that Anglicans have never regarded this book as sacrosanct, like as un, as irreformable, or as in some way on par with Scripture. Actually, as we have discovered 
what we think are better liturgical practices or words or better ways of organizing the liturgy, like we've changed it, right? And then the, the other really cool thing about it is that every new province that has been formed has created its own Book of Common Prayer. And they're all patterned after the original, but they all have distinctive um, uh, uh, cultural emphases that play into the formation of that liturgy. One of my favorite examples of this is the Kenyan Eucharistic liturgy, which is, de- I mean, it's deeply African. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, it has this beautiful line. It says, uh, uh, Christ is the host and we are his guests when, it, when the invitation to the table is extended. I, I just think it's gorgeous. Um, but, but every, every uh, province has its own prayer book. Um, the ACNA is coming out with its own prayer book um, here in a month. So we'll have that. And I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at it, and I think it's mostly pretty amazing, actually. Um, the sort of gold standard for all future prayer book revisions and translations, though, is the 1662 prayer book, just as a point of reference. Say that again? Oh, we just, the, one of the churches we went to, he insisted on the 1662. Oh, wow. Yeah. But he was very stuffy. Yes. <laughs> one would have to be to really advocate for 1662. It's the King's English, right? So, I mean, it's... Right. Um, But, you know, at the same time that we say, okay, this has been kind of, um, you know, we've we've moved past some of this language, we've improved on the rights to some degree, I think um, that remains a kind of gold standard because it it gives us a template. It tells us, like, you know, here's our history, here's what what it looks like to have the elements of the prayer book together, and, and so then all the revisions kind of take that as a starting point. All right, so all prayer books have the same format. There's the daily office, uh, because they're all dependent upon 1662, right? Um, they all have the same format. Daily office, um, morning and evening prayer. The Holy Eucharist, with a special kind of uh, additional liturgy for baptismal Sundays. Um, and pastoral offices, which includes things like confession, uh, uh, anointing of the sick, funerals, uh, and so on. And then an ordinal, which is the liturgy for ordinations. Uh, there's a translation of the Psalter, um, because that's a, a critical piece of what we do together in the daily offices. Um, it's a critical piece of our of our piety. Actually, um, um, if you if you do the daily offices, you go through all of the psalms once every month. So there's a profound emphasis on repetition of the psalms. Uh, and then there's various resources related to the lectionary, which is just simply the appointment of of specific scriptures for each day of the week um, during the daily office lectionary, and then for each Sunday of the year. Um, in the Sunday lectionary. So we have, actually have two different lectionaries. Um, any questions on anything related to the Book of Common Prayer? Or comments? I have a question. Yeah. It might not be specifically about the Book of Common no, Prayer. But because um, usually it's like an Old Testament reading, yeah. Psalm, New mm-hmm. Testament Gospel. Right. But it's currently, I guess, in Easter yeah. to New Testament. Right. So what... What's yeah. the deal with that? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I should probably think more about where this came from, but every Easter time we read through Acts. And so I, I, think, I think the point of that is the lead up to, P- to Pentecost, okay. right? Yeah. Um, the founding of the church. What's that now? Yeah, because Pentecost, Pentecost celebrates the founding of the church. Right. Um, so I think it's probably related to that. Um, and I have this kind of vague memory that I read somewhere that Augustine advocates that kind of practice of like reading between Easter tide and Pentecost with reading of Acts. Uh, and maybe Jerome does too, but I might be making that up um, or drawing it from somewhere else. But I, th- I think it's a pretty ancient practice of like this specific season we read these things, right? So it's just during the season, it's not. Yeah, yeah. It has everything to do. So the calendar, I mean, 
So that, maybe that's another thing we should talk about is the calendar. Because um, the calendar, I think the calendar is a great gift to the church. Um, but the, from the very inception of the church, uh, the, the first holy day was Easter, right? I mean, the celebration of the resurrection is utterly critical to the life of the church. I mean, it's the foundation of the church, right? Um, it's when we know that, that hist- the hinge of history is actually shifted and it's centered upon Jesus Christ, right? Mm. And so um, there's a dramatic kind of, um, I mean, a, a dramatic reorientation of everything around that central historical point. So that becomes the, the critical feast day of the church. Uh, and then very, very quickly thereafter, um, I think the first time we see it mentioned is in the third century, there's a 40-day period that's tacked onto that, which is, uh, which is Lent, right? Um, and then um, another critical point, right, sort of node, uh, is the celebration of the Incarnation. And that comes very quickly thereafter. And then very quickly, the same pattern that, you know, that transpired with Easter happens with with, um, with Christmas, which is Advent, right? So, so then we get these two kind of um, uh, hinges upon which the whole of the calendar turns, okay? Uh, Easter being the one which everything else revolves around. Easter is the critical thing. So the day, I mean, you know, and then, and then Christmas is, is, uh, is like also fixed. But then, so around these two poles, everything else kind of spins, right? And then we get these other feasts that are added um, slowly. So we get Pentecost added after Easter, um, and I'm trying to think of what else there is. My mind is blanking right now. Um, but but other holy days that are added around. Ascension. Huh? Ascension. Right. Ascension's added. Um, but Ascension's added later. And there's a bunch of these other feasts that are added like in the medieval period, right? Um, but the, 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 first, the first ones and the critical ones are Easter and Christmas and then the seasons that, that uh, precede them, uh, seasons of preparation and fasting that precede them. Um, but... I think these are really important, profound gifts to the church, and especially, I think, there's something about our contemporary era that, um, that has a demand for them, because they kind of teach you how to feel, right? Like, there's a sense of, you know, there's a, there's a constant, uh, relentless um, insistence upon optimism and, like, like, being on all the time, right, in America, um, that doesn't allow a place for mourning or grieving, um, and it's actually like really ancient. Like there's um, a really interesting book by Sidney Mead called The Lively Experiment, which is about, it's kind of a history, episodic history of American Christianity. But he talks about the Puritans in there as being people who had no, had no time for grief, right? They just, they, they were, um, it quotes a poem by, I forget who it is, but one of the early Puritan poets, uh, who's a woman who lost like five children and her husband. And she's like, there's no time for grief. There's no time at all. Only time for work in the, in the cold snow. Right. Oh right. It's terrible. Um, terrible. It is terrible. But I mean, I, there's something about. So his thesis of this book is that what time is to the European imagination, space is to the American imagination. So there's a, you know, there's not a sense of belonging to something that's deep and profound, but a constant kind of relentless movement, right? Um, and so you know, this sense of, of of having a liturgy which teaches us to feel and to slow down um, is, I think, a huge gift. So anyway, but that's not one of Cranmer's gifts. I mean, that's ancient. But but I mean, the, but again, Anglicanism retains it, right? I mean, so it is one of these things that that one of the pieces of the, the tradition's wisdom that Anglicanism has held onto. Um, all right. So the other thing that Cranmer, unless there's other questions about the about the Book of Common Prayer, all right. 
So uh, the other kind of thing that Cramer bequeaths to the Anglican tradition is the 39 Articles of Religion. So this is, as I mentioned earlier, the confessional statement of the Anglican Church worldwide. Um, ironically, it was officially promulgated as, this, as the confessional statement of the church only after Cranmer was executed. Um, so he wrote it, you know, during Edward's reign, but then Edward only lasted, I think it was like six years. No, nine years. I forget how long it was. Anyway, um, after he died, though, um, his sister, uh, Mary Tudor, who was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, uh, which would be Henry's first wife that he had killed, uh, and she's like, as piping hot... Protestant, as some of these reformers were, she was piping hot Roman Catholic. She wanted to roll back all this stuff. So she executes all of the bishops, right? I mean, all of the, all of the reforming bishops. So, you know, uh, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer and Cranmer are all executed at the same time. Uh, they're burned at the stake, right? So they're, they're burned as heretics. Uh, and Cranmer um, initially uh, recants his, his Protestantism, his, his Reformation theology, and then he recants his recantation, um, after it's clear that he's going to die anyway. Um, and, you know, uh, well, the first thing he does, actually, as he's marched up to the pyre, which is already burning, <clears throat> is he plunges his hand in and he says, this hand, this hand hath offended. It's very dramatic and also very 16th century-ish, I think. Um, but, but that's what happens. So after, after all of that happens, Mary Tudor's reign only lasts for three years, and she actually dies of stomach cancer. Um, but after she dies, her sister Elizabeth, who is kind of like, um, she is reformational, but she is also very moderate. Like she just doesn't, she wants peace. So she basically creates a, the, the idea of the middle way church, right? Um, so, uh, she, as she becomes queen, she enjoins this very strongly via media form of, of, um, reformational Christianity, um, Richard Hooker, the sort of greatest Elizabethan apologist of the Anglican Church, describes it explicitly as a middle way between Rome and Geneva. Um, and then, uh, you know, that becomes a, a template through which many Anglicans understand themselves over the centuries. Uh, my favorite um, Anglican apologist uh, from the 17th century says it this way. His name's Simon Patrick. He says that the Church of England from Elizabeth on strove to embody a virtuous mediocrity between the meretricious gaudiness of the Church of Rome and the squalid sluttery of the fanatic conventicles. <laughs> yeah. Who could top that? Who could really top it? Or, or really, but, but who would want to be that either? You know what I mean? Right. So I, I think that like, when we talk about well, what does it mean to be a via media, does it just mean fence-sitting or like basically trying to you know, hold together things that don't go together um, because you, you lack courage, right? Um, I think Simon Patrick represents that poll, if I'm being honest. Um, but that's actually not what Anglicanism has been in its history or strives to be in the present. Um, again, I think it's that, that more dynamic, reformed Catholicism. So the 39 articles uh, that Cranmer penned before he died, uh, which became the confessional statement of the church under Elizabeth, um, is broadly speaking a reformed document. So it's more closely associated with the reformations that happened in Switzerland, so uh, Zwingli and Calvin, rather than Luther, um, although there's plenty of overlap with Luther. Um, and the, the, the pieces that feel more reformed are really around um, sanctification, the doctrine of sanctification, um, or you know, the, the requirement of holiness, right? Like that, that grace actually produces holiness uh, and the specific way in which that happens. Um, and then also the sacraments, uh, and there's major differences as well, which I'll get to in a minute, from the Continental Reformation as a whole. But just on that question of sanctification, um, Article 12 says of good works, 
uh, the following. Albeit the good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put, off, put away our sins, yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ, and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. Now, there's a bunch of scholastic disputes that I think have convulsed Presbyterianism and Lutheranism over the centuries about <coughs> how do good works relate to justification, um, which Anglicanism has Anglicanism just like eschewed altogether. Like we just don't care because the, the, just the reality is like we are justified for the sake of our sanctification, our purification, our like, you know, conformity to Christ's likeness. That's what it's for, right? So this language is like the language we have used as a substitute for all that scholastic disputation of true faith is lively faith. It's living faith. And if it's not lively, if it's not living, it's not true. You know, QED, right? So, um, so I think that that's helpful in a sense. And I think the liturgy has helped us to, um, to, to stand astride differences that have split other communions, I think, which is really helpful. Um, all right, but there are major differences between this document and the Reformation traditions on the continent. One of them is the authority in the church, uh, and I mean that by the, the kind of polity that we espouse, the church government that we espouse. Um, uh, the, uh, no, I don't, mean, I don't mean that, actually. I mean, like, what the church is actually able to, um, to do, the kinds of decisions the church is able to make, right? Um, vis-a-vis other kinds of communions. And then, uh, secondly, the apostolic order of bishops, priests, and deacons. And then, thirdly, uh, the sacraments. So, Article 20 says, of the authority of the church, that the church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith. And yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. So, the posture of Anglicanism, that Anglicanism adopts, unlike Presbyterians. Presbyterians have what's sometimes called the regulative principle, are you familiar with this, Britt? Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us what the regular principle um, means? If it's commanded in Scripture, then you do it. If it's not commanded in Scripture, you should not do it. You don't do it. You have no warrant to do it. You have to have an express warrant from <laughs> yeah. Scripture. Or a warrant that's given by good and necessary consequence, is what the right. Westminster Confession says. Anglicans are just like, no, none of that. If it's not contrary to what Scripture says, if it's not in some way um, you know, contravening a central principle that's taught in Scripture, then, then we, can say, we can do it, you know? So again, that allows us to have great flexibility in, in the reception of the tradition of the church um, that other communions have not had historically. Um, and then, uh, so sometimes this is called the Hooker Principle because it's the first one to really champion it is Richard Hooker. Um, all right, and then uh, on the sacraments, um, I already mentioned the apostolic order that's, that's mentioned in the, um, in the articles as well. But uh, uh, Article 25 of the sacraments, I think is really helpful. I kind of mentioned it already. Sacraments ordained of Christ be not only badges or tokens of Christian men's profession. In other words, these are not simply symbols, but rather they be certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace and God's goodwill toward us, by, by the which he doth work invisibly in us and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. So they actually are channels or conduits of God's grace towards us. They are places where we experience and encounter Christ reliably. So actually, the 1662 baptismal liturgy, when, when a baby is baptized, it says we should consider this child regenerate. Um, that we, we believe these things are actually the way in which God gets at us, the material means by which God works upon us um, to do things in us, and they're reliable in that way. Um, okay, so also the articles defend uh, the Catholic universally held doctrines of the Trinity and Christology, uh, Christ's incarnation, death, resurrection, ministry. 
uh, defends the authority of Scripture above all things. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. Um, but one thing to note that differentiates it, again, from some of the Reformation traditions is that it also includes within the Scripture somewhat, um, and I say somewhat, very, it's a very important caveat. It includes them somewhat, uh, the books of the Apocrypha. Um, so here's, uh, let, me, let me just give a, the, the most simplistic way of understanding where these books come from. So you know what I'm talking about when I say the Apocrypha, everyone? Yeah. Gian? No. Okay, so there are 66 books of the, of the Old and New Testaments, and like one of the articles says there are 66 books in the, in the canon, okay, just to be really clear. Um, so that's all the books when you open up, you know, your standard English translation of the Bible, like that's what's in there, okay? Um, but then there are other books, and they include things like First and Second Maccabees, First and Second Estras, Tobit, the Book of Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, or Ben Sirach, um, and uh, there's some others, but like longer endings to Daniel and Esther. Um, so these are all in, like if you open a Catholic Bible, those books are in there. If you open an Orthodox Bible, those books are in there. Um, and, and actually the Orthodox canon is even longer than the Catholic canon. So like, pro, like Protestants, Catholics, and, and the Orthodox all have different Bibles, actually. Um, and so what does Anglicanism do with this? And, and also, where do those come from? So uh, simple, simplest answer is there are two kind of like textual traditions of the Bible that come to us from antiquity. Okay, the first one comes to us through a Greek translation of the scriptures that's made in the second century. It's called, sometimes called the Septuagint. Um, this textual tradition, and again, it's a tradition, so there's actually, you know, different, the text diverges at different points from different scholarly hands transmitting it. Um, but it includes all these books, okay? Um, and so when uh, the, the apostles quote scripture, typically they're quoting from the Septuagint, like 65, 70% of the time that they're quoting from the Septuagint, um, not this other textual tradition. So the other textual tradition, um, okay, so you got that first thing down so far, Septuagint? There's another textual tradition that is preserved by, uh, ultimately, by Babylonian rabbis. It's called the Masoretic Text. And this is the text that when you get a Protestant Bible and you pull it down, that's that text, okay? Um, so how did, how did this, you know, did the, was, the early, was the early church aware of this tension and so on and so forth? Yes. Uh, very few of the early fathers actually spoke or wrote Hebrew. Um, so... If you wanted to learn Hebrew, you really had to go out of your way as an, as an early Christian, right? So uh, one of the third century Christians, a guy named Origen, went out of his way because he wanted to evangelize Jewish people uh, to learn Hebrew. And he discovered that as he was talking to the rabbis that they had like this totally different text, not totally different, but this much shorter text of the scripture. So he couldn't make the arguments out of texts like First and Second Maccabees. He had to make it from their, their canon in order to make a legitimate valid argument, right? Um, so he said... You know, what we're going to do is, it's not that we, we, we disregard the authority of the other text, but in terms of, you know, the text that we're going to use to evangelize people, it's going to be this one, right? Um, so in the 5th century, there's a, a guy who, um, who took a bunch of different Latin translations that had come into existence and tried to create a, a kind of standardized text for it. It's a guy named Jerome. And Jerome looked at what Origen had said, and he said, okay, I think actually we need to regard these texts as being different in authority. So... The primary text is the 66 books of the Bible, and these other texts he called a deuterocanon, the second canon, right, of lesser authority, and he said we should use it to just establish 
morals. Like, we're going to use it to instruct people in manners, but we're not going to try to establish any doctrine out of it because it's not agreed upon as an authority, right? And he was, you know, uh, opposed by Augustine in this. So there's a kind of back and forth between Augustine and Jerome on the authority of these books. Okay, so when the Anglicans enter this Reformation fray, so Luther is the, the first one who's really like, these books don't count. Like, you know, they're used to establish all kinds of erroneous doctrines, like, you know, the prayers for people in purgatory and things. So we're not going to have these books anymore. Um, and he, he's the one that first takes them out of the text and puts them in a kind of middle section all to their own, right? Um, so, and then Calvin just jettisons them all together. Uh, the Anglicans say, we're going to continue to read them, but we're going to use them in the way that Jerome said we should use them, which is to say, to establish morals or moral teaching, um, but not to uh, establish any doctrine. So that's how the articles have put all of those things together. So if you do the daily office, right, you will discover on occasion that you'll be reading from a book of the Apocrypha, and you'll be like, why is this in here? Why am I reading from Ecclesiasticus right now? What the heck is Ecclesiasticus anyway? Um, but it won't, it won't say the word of God, thanks be to God. It will say, it will say, here ends the reading, to make clear that this is not on the same level as the scriptures that we read in, uh, as the word of God written, the word of God written. Um, and again, sometimes on Sunday morning, like you'll hear, there's a reading from Wisdom, a reading from the book of Ecclesiastes, whatever it is. Um, so that's why we do that. And I think it's important for us to continually explain that because it's, you know, these are not, these are like beautiful books, actually. Like, so what I preached uh, a couple Sundays ago on, um, the, on Good Shepherd Sunday, I told the story of Judah, Judah Maccabee, right? Well, that's in 1 Maccabees, right? If you didn't know 1 Maccabees, you would have no idea what happened in that 400-year period in between the closing of the Old Testament and what happens to Jesus. And like, John expects that you will know that story because he says it's on the festival of dedication that Jesus is walking through, you know, Sol Solomon's portico. Right. So... I think it's important. Anyway, all right. <clears throat> Lastly, um, the, the articles accept the three ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, and it says they may be proved by the most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. So I think this is important. We are absolutely a creedal church. We say the creed, we say the Apostles' Creed every single day in morning and evening prayer. We say the Nicene Creed every Sunday, um, except for on baptism Sundays when we say the Apostles' Creed. Uh, we say the Apostles' Creed at funerals. And we say the Athanasian Creed once a year on Trinity Sunday. Um, we are absolutely, like, unapologetically creedal Christians. We believe that the creeds summarize the apostolic preaching and help us to know how to read the scriptures, actually. If we read the scriptures in any way that contravenes any article of the creed, we read them wrongly. Um, and what's interesting is that in the first few centuries of the church, when the church was combating things like Gnosticism or Martianism, these, these heresies that emerged about the person of Christ— what they appealed to was creed-like statements that looked like the Apostles' Creed. So people like Irenaeus and Origen and Tertullian, they all appealed to these creed-like statements, which they said, these are summaries of the Apostles' teaching. This is the rule of faith. This is how you know which books are legitimate, and this is how you know how to interpret the books. If you don't interpret them this way, you're wrong. You know? So we, we hold on to that emphasis, and we think creed and canon go together. So, um, yeah, important. Any questions or comments on any of that? No? Okay. All right, let's move to Anglicanism in America. All right. So the first thing to note is that the way that um, Anglicanism is first conceived of after the Reformation is that it's the Catholic Church worshiping in England. That's Richard Hooker's form formulation of what Anglicanism is. 
Um, so this is just, you know, it's, again, it kind of goes back to that medieval dispute between, you know, is it kings or popes that decide the, the character of what the church is going to look like. Um, so Hooker kind of leans upon that distinction, and he says, no, it's just the Catholic Church worshiping in England. So um, as is English Christianity, it kind of goes wherever England does, right? So when, it, when England begins to enter the colonial fray in that, you know, they go to the New World, uh, colony at Jamestown is established, the kind of worship, as you might imagine, that goes there is Church of England worship. It's Anglican worship, um, using the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and, you know, on down the line, right, when, when the, uh, England goes to South Africa or it goes to Canada, it's the Book of Common Prayer that, that precedes it. So um, this puts Anglicanism in a pretty difficult position when the revolution comes in 1776, as you might imagine. Um, Anglicans are all kind of caught off guard by this. It's a strongly royalist church. It's a strongly... I mean, it's a, it's a church with a strong sense of itself as English. Um, it's the Church of England worshiping in the English colonies, right? Uh, so because of this, you know, the, the whole liturgy is just what is given to us in 1662, right? We're praying for the king and all this kind of stuff, and that's obviously suspect. Uh, but more importantly, we have no American bishops. We have zero American bishops. We have no way of ordaining new clergy, and the church is disorganized and scattered. Nobody knows what's happening, and the church nearly collapses entirely. So um, what happens is... Uh, the, the, the church uh, comes together in convocation and says, we're going to send um, delegates to England to consecrate a bishop for us so we can go on and you know, create new clergy and plant new churches and reorganize ourselves. So they sent a guy named Samuel Seabury, who's from New York, to be consecrated as a bishop for the fledgling church. Uh, problem is, zero English bishops will touch him because they're like, what is going on? We don't even know what to do with you. Like, you're not going to square an oath of fealty to the king? Like, who are you? Like, we don't, we're not sure we have authority to do this. Um, so this fascinating thing happens. So in the 17th century, there's this kind of like, you know, long kind of difficult to follow succession of kings that happens, right? So first you get Charles I, and uh, Charles finds himself in trouble with Parliament. Um, he's trying to finance wars, and Parliament won't give him any money unless he makes certain kinds of changes, but he thinks that he rules with divine right, so he's unwilling to make the changes. And so then he gets himself in, involved in this battle with, between the Parliament and the Scots, and he gets captured, and then he gets beheaded. And it's like the first regicide in modern history, and it's like, what's happening? And England turns into this protectorate, okay? So, and then the Anglican Church has to go underground. So after, after all that happens and the, the protectorate collapses, then you get Charles II as the king. And Charles II is a really fancy guy, right? He like really likes high church stuff. He's like really kind of Catholic-leaning. And his son, James II, actually converts to Roman Catholicism. And when he becomes king, everybody swears an oath of allegiance to him. And then he announces, hey, I'm Roman Catholic, by the way. And so there's a group of like, you know, reformational Protestant types who are like, this is unacceptable. So they like go and talk to... Um, a king in the Netherlands, and they say, why don't you become our king? So he raises an army, comes across the channel, and uh, takes over England. And this is, you know, Bonnie Prince Billy. You heard that name? Right. This is <laughs> Prince William, William and Mary, you know, like at a college named after this guy. The glorious revolution is what this is. So what happens is, like, there's a bunch of clergy who've already sworn an oath of allegiance to James II. And uh, they're like, well, we can't rescind that oath. We actually still owe him the oath of allegiance. And they're like, well, get out. Like, you can't, no one can no longer be in office in this church. So they all leave and they go to Scotland. And they create the Scottish Episcopal Church up there. And they begin to do all these, like, interesting liturgical experiments. They create, they're like, the 1662 liturgy is pretty good, but not as good as it could be. So they, like, go back and mine older liturgies and they, they put in new stuff. And they publish these things they call the wee bookies because they're Scottish. Wee bookies. Um, 
And there are these liturgical experiments, right? So um, anyway, Samuel Seabury is in England. Nobody will, nobody will consecrate him. So he's like, he hears about there's a Scottish church that is a kind of offshoot of Anglicanism, and they've got bishops. So he's like, I'll go up there and talk to them. And they're like, absolutely, we'll consecrate you. Um, but when we consecrate you, we want to create a concordat between, you know, or a kind of um, ambassadorial relationship between our church and your new church in Anglicanism uh, that will um, ensure that, we, that our Eucharistic liturgies especially are closely aligned with one another. It's like this is the central kind of feast of the church. Like we want to be as aligned as closely as possible in that. So Seabury's like, that sounds great. So they consecrate him. He comes back, to, and the, the new American church is formed in 1789. They create their own book of common prayer. And when they do so, they do so using both the 1662 book and the We Bookies, which have these liturgical experiments in them. So our Eucharistic liturgy from its inception is more Scottish than English, actually, which I think is pretty cool. So, you know, although there is this kind of colonial history, there's also this, like, already international kind of experience that has, has uh, really, I think... Um, formed Anglicanism in America. It's more Scottish than it is English, right? Um, I think that's important to note. Um, and it already gives, I think, the basis for understanding how Anglicanism as a communion, as an international communion, can exist independently of what is like ultimately British Christianity. Um, because you've already got, okay, there's this, there's this kind of accidental wing of Anglicanism in Scotland that's different than the mother church. And then that creates actually the, the American church. Uh, so then when, when these other churches, these other countries become independent, places like Canada and then, um, you know, South Africa, and then I forget what's next after South Africa, but there's, you know, basically this, this really picks up steam beginning in 1960 when the African nations uh, become, you know, get free of, of colonialism and become uh, nation states themselves. Um, but, but all this kind of picks up steam at that point. But, but, but already by that point, there is this sense of Anglicanism as a, a communion which is spiritually uh, dependent, interdependent, um, but jurisdictionally independent, right? So like England doesn't have any say about what happens in America, but we come from a common provenance. We meet up and we, we discuss things and we try to solve problems together. So we have a communion that is not, um, that is not dependent upon jurisdiction. Hmm. Whereas I think one of the, this is one of my major criticisms of the Roman Catholic Church is that it depends almost entirely for its union upon uh, juridical alliances. So wherever the Roman church is, its allegiance is to the jurisdiction that exists in Rome, right? And that's the basis of the union. Uh, and that's something that goes back, I think, to, as I've already mentioned, Gregory Seventh, right? The pope is in command of everything. Um, whereas Anglicanism has, I think, preserved a much more um, uh, local flavor because, it, because it's capable of, of that kind of innovation within tradition. Um, anyway, all right. Um, so that's the church in America. Any questions on that? All right. So the creation of that new province in the U.S. becomes the basis for jurisdictional independence and spiritual interdependence. Okay. So, um, so I think it's probably like been implicit in all that I've said so far, uh, but just to bring it to explicit awareness, Anglicanism has always been a very internally diverse tradition. Um, there's always been people who are pressing for more high church stuff, people who are pressing for more low church stuff, people who are pressing for more like evangelism, more mission, and so forth. Um, and so it's, it's created, I think, it spawned a variety of approaches to liturgy and ceremonial within the overall allegiance to and ordering by the Book of Common Prayer. Um, 
And then, but in the 19th century, uh, this kind of internal diversity that's been there since the beginning hardens into what became known as church parties. Okay, so it's, it's basically, you know, this happens first in the Church of England, and then it spreads to America and other places where Anglicanism is gone. Um, the first of these parties was, was called an Anglo-Catholic or ceremonialist party, and it, it began the movement towards this church, the, the hardening of church parties, because it pressed so hard in a Catholicizing direction. So the movement begins at in 1833 at Oxford. And there are these several professors there, John Keeble and Edward Pusey and John Henry Newman and a few others that did this really deep dive both into the church fathers and to the high church Anglicans of the 17th century. People like uh, John Cousin and Jeremy Taylor and Joseph Bramhall. You probably never heard of any of these guys, but they were really important back then. Um, and they, these, these guys were all high church bishops and they were, they were kind of pushing for more you know, uh, extravagant ornamentation and liturgical revision and things like that. Um, they used these studies uh, in the fathers in the 17th century um, Catholic divines, they called them, to write a series of tracts for the times. You ever heard of tracts for the times? Familiar language? It comes from, from that, that movement. It lasted from 1833 to 1845. And there were 90 of these tracts produced um, during this and they, they became increasingly more elaborate. They began as kind of like broadsides. Like one of them, the first one was called On National Apostasy, and it was on this, it basically like, you know, the fact that the parliament controls everything that's happening in the church is a, is a sign that the church is apostatized in, in this nation. Um, and so calling for that in spiritual independence of the church. Um, and then, but from there, they became more and more complicated until they became these giant tomes that are like 800 pages long on different things, like fasting and like the, the, the use of the breviary, which is like all the... Um, the prayer hours, the seven prayer hours that I kind of mentioned, the Benedictines prayed, things like this. Um, but um, they, they, they use these tracts of time to criticize the architecture of the churches, the ceremonial of the churches, the liturgical splendor of existing churches, the mission, the form of the mission of, of, of the churches uh, in the 19th century. Um, and it inspired, actually, a really dramatic revival in, in a couple of different levels. One is the revival of liturgical ornamentation. So if you went into a church at the beginning of the 19th century, probably what you would see is whitewashed walls. You'd see a wooden table you know, that was down front, um, and it would look a lot like a Presbyterian church, right? Um, but because of the revival of liturgical orna or ornamentation, there was a, uh, a, a return to the use of colored stoles that reflect the season of the year that we're in, the use of uh, frontals on the, on the front of the altar, a movement towards actually having stone altars again rather than just tables and fencing around the, the, the altars, um, things like this. Also a revival of uh, Gothic architecture. So Ascension is a product of Anglo-Catholicism, um, even though I would not describe us in any way as Anglo-Catholic now. Uh, that's, that's not our ethos, but this church building comes from that revival. Um, Anglo-Catholics are also, um, I think it's important to stress that it wasn't just like fanciness that they, that they favored. Um, they were deeply concerned for the poor. Um, they felt as though the poor were icons of Christ and that they deserved beauty, right? So like where the poor lived were these like horrible tenements. This is the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Um, there were no protections for the poor. And so, you know, a large number of these Anglo-Catholics became slum priests in the inner city London and Manchester and Birmingham and other English cities. They were dedicated to the poor, and they, they, they got patrons to build beautiful churches in the inner city to honor the dignity of the poor and give them beautiful spaces to worship. Um, so one of the first uh, African bishops is a guy named, uh, from the Anglican communion is a guy named Frank Weston. And he, he, uh, 
And in one of the Anglo-Catholic Congresses, is one of the gatherings where the Anglo-Catholics came together in 1923, he said this. This is kind of a longer quote, but I think it's really good. This now mark that this is the gospel truth. If you are prepared to say that the Anglo-Catholic is at perfect liberty to rake in all the money he can get, no matter what the wages are that are paid, no matter what the conditions are under which people work, if you say that the Anglo-Catholic has a right to hold his peace while his fellow citizens are living in hovels below the levels of the streets, this I say to you, you do not yet know Jesus Christ in the sacrament. You have begun with, with the Christ of Bethlehem. You have gone on to know something of the Christ of Calvary. But the Christ of the sacrament, not yet. Oh, brethren, if only you listen tonight, your movement is going to sweep England. If you listen. I'm not talking economics. I don't understand them. I'm not talking politics. I don't understand them. I'm talking the gospel. And I say this to you. If you are Christians, then your Jesus is one and the same. Jesus on the throne of his glory. Jesus in the blessed sacrament. Jesus received into your hearts in communion, Jesus with you mystically as you pray, and Jesus enthroned on the hearts and bodies of his brothers and sisters up and down this country. And it is folly, it is madness to suppose that you can worship Jesus in the sacraments and Jesus on the throne of glory when you are sweating him in the souls and bodies of his children. It cannot be done. So this is a massive priority of the Anglo-Catholics to, to recover this duty, obligation, responsibility to justice and to the poor. Um, and it's, it's in large part the reason why Anglo-Catholics were so successful in the 19th century. Um, it's because they were visible icons walking around the streets, like dedicating themselves to the things of Jesus that we should dedicate ourselves to. Um, so in response to uh, Anglo-Catholicism, an evangelical party emerged that was really concerned about the Catholicizing direction of these, of these various priests and bishops. Um, now, Evangelicalism is a, has a, a very complicated movement that begins really in the 18th century, um, so before these parties, um, and it's a transdenominational movement, right? So it's a movement that encompasses, you know, like the Churches of Christ and um, Congregationalists in New England and um, Presbyterians and Anglicans. It's all over the place, and it, it, you know, David Bebbington is an historian who's done a, a lot of work on trying to understand what Anglicanism has been in its history, and he's identified kind of four characteristics that all evangelicals share. Um, uh, biblicism, like a, a central emphasis on the, on the authority of Scripture, uh, crucicentrism, the power of the cross of Christ, um, public activism, so um, um, work, the works for justice and mercy, um, and also you know, the, what, what uh, William Wilberforce calls the reformation of manners, right? So it's so basically trying to do away with social ills. Um, and then lastly, uh, conversionism, so an emphasis on the new birth. So those four things kind of characterize evangelicalism across the board. Um, but the, the, the way evangelicalism looks in, looks in the Anglican church is a little bit different than the other kind of interdenominational evangelical movement in the 18th century. Um, and and uh, part of it is that like, these people are all much more churchly than a lot of the evangelicals in the 19th century, or the 18th and 19th century. So you know, three of the most prominent, well-known evangelicals, John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, are all Anglican priests, right? Um, and, and John and Charles Wesley in particular um, are, are really pretty Catholic, actually. Um, Charles Wesley wrote an entire book of Eucharistic hymns, for instance, right? And, and both of them emphasized, like, both of them really wanted to restore daily communion, because that's what they saw in the early church, like, communion every single day. Um, so uh, John Wesley preached a sermon called uh, On the Duty of Constant Communion, um, which he doesn't mean, like, he doesn't mean that metaphorically. He means, like, constantly receiving communion. Uh, so he says, Let everyone, therefore, who has either any desire to please God or any love of his own soul obey God and consult the good of his own soul by communing every time he can, like the first Christians, with whom the Christian sacrifice was a constant part of the Lord's Day service. And for several centuries they received it almost every day, four times a week always, and every saint's day beside. So now, 
when, when Wesley wrote that, the, the sort of standard practice for Anglicans was to have communion about once a month. Um, and, you know, otherwise it was morning prayer on Sunday morning. And so Wesley, the Wesley said that this is just, this, this aggression will not stand, you know, to quote Big Lebowski, um, and insisted upon, you know, at least weekly communion and, and, and trying to revive daily communion. Um, but in the 19th century, uh, this kind of, you know, the Catholic spirit, which was Wesley advocated, that was like his word, the Catholic spirit, um, kind of fell away because of the concern about ceremonialism, because of this concern about the Catholicizing uh, direction. And these, these, these uh, became kind of really Protestant, agitated Protestant um, evangelicals. Uh, like one, one of them, uh, Bishop Breckenridge said, it's the, it's the first duty of my clergy that I instruct them in is to emphasize the Protestant character of the Church of England. And I'm kind of like, well, that seems a little bit askew. You know? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it probably wouldn't be the first thing that I would want my clergy to know. Um, but, uh, but it became so critical for evangelicals to distinguish themselves and to push hard against that, the, um, the Catholicizing direction of the, of the Anglo-Catholics. Um, but alongside of this, you know, kind of anti-Catholic like, biblicism that, that was um, central to the evangelical movement in the 19th century, uh, it was also this profound sense of duty of evangelism and ministry to the poor, right? So this sense of, you know, while we're distracted thinking about liturgical splendor and ceremonial and stuff, like, what about evangelism? What about, like, our dedication to the Great Commission? What about the responsibility to share Christ with others? And what about ministry to the poor and public activism for the eradication of public evils? So in a journal entry in 1787, the most famous of evangelicals of all time, William Wilberforce, um, wrote that God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Right? So this profound sense of obligation to, to uh, the eradication of specific, specific public ills. Um, you know, so so Wilberforce is, is super interesting. And again, partially in contradistinction from the way that he's been used by contemporary evangelicals, right? Because some of those things that he really cared about like have really nothing to do with, with contemporary evangelical politics. So um, you know, Wilberforce had this profound creational theology. Um, he was absolutely devoted to the reduction in cruelty <coughs> to animals. So Wilberforce and another uh, member of parliament named Richard, Ma Richard uh, Martin, and along with others in his evangelical part of Anglicanism, the Clapham sect, um, uh, helped found the first Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in 1824. Hmm. So this is a time when in London, like a, a common pastime was bear baiting. So it's like, you know, like basically watching a bear tear apart another animal, right? Like that was what passed for fun. And like people, you know, like beating their um, their work animals and things like that. Like that he would try to he would try to stop. So he was one of the first advocates for um, the prevention of cruelty to animals. I think it's important to note because it's like this is these are like beautiful priorities that were espoused by evangelicals, along with the suppression of the slave trade um, and other things that needed to happen. Devotion to the poor, I think. Um, and it's really only um, evangelicalism really only changed course in the first quarter of the 20th century during the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Now, what do you guys know about that? Do you guys know anything about the fundamentalist modernist controversy here in the States or in England? Anyone? No? Sounds vaguely familiar. Vaguely familiar. Okay. All right. So modernism is... Um, golly, how do I explain it concisely? Okay, so there, there are three kind of critical emphases intellectually in a sort of intellectual culture of... Um, the 19th century that became kind of acids that eroded the Christian faith. One of them was Darwinism, right? Like the church didn't right. know what to do with Darwinism. And really, it's not evolution, right? Because there were, there's a form of evolution, um, Lamarckian evolution, that a lot of, um, that a lot of uh, 19th century scholars wanted to adopt. So like a prominent 
scholar, uh, Har uh, Harvard um, biologist named Asa Gray, he was a Lamarckian evolutionist, and he was a strong Presbyterian, right? Orthodox Presbyterian. Right. Um, but specifically Darwinism, because it was atheistic. I mean, it, it, it was a, a profound sense that, that, that um, there's no divine providence that we can detect behind evolution. It's just, it just is descent with modification. That's it. Um, and it's really like, you know, it's not survival of the fittest, it's survival of the fitter, because it's just like whichever one survives, right? Um, and so that, like the, you know, the Darwin and then his champions, people um, like, oh gosh, what's that guy's name? The bulldog of Darwinism. I forget what his name is. Um, oh, Julian Huxley, There's, that's his name. Um, he was kind of the popularizer of Darwin in England. Uh, and there was a lot, like Herbert Spencer in the United States and a lot of other professors uh, in, in the States who began to espouse that doctrine. And then it became kind of influential in biblical studies. Evolution became the paradigm through which we came to understand the Bible. Um, so that became a, a tough thing for Christians to absorb. And how do we, how do we reckon with this? Uh, then also along with that and kind of um, dovetailing with it was the rise of higher criticism. So higher criticism of the Bible. So textual criticism has always been practiced. Like basically people recognize that like the text of the Bible that we have, we have lots of them. We have like 5,000 copies of the text of the Bible in various forms. Um, and they don't all match up, right? There's like different wording and there's different, like some, some of them actually have different texts. So textual criticism is the process of the comparison of those texts to figure out what does the Bible actually say, right? That's always been practiced. What is different about the higher criticism is number one, a, uh, a naturalist presupposition. So the idea that it's not, divine providence is nowhere in this. Like basically it's just accident how it all shook out. Right? So we should also be looking for all of the human elements in this that explain why the text is how it is. So then there's a variety of techniques that emerge within higher criticism, like um, redaction criticism. How did the text get put together? The, what texts you know, um, were put together in order to create this? And what were those earlier traditions that gave rise to the later tradition like? And how did they differ from that final text? And speculation about that, which then... Um, led people to kind of disintegrate the Christian faith, right? So, like, what we actually have is the final text of the Bible, right? So anything, and, and we don't have any of these earlier speculatively constructed texts, so all we have is the speculations of scholars about them, right? But those become the basis by which the scholars say, like, the text isn't trustworthy. You know, Christianity as it emerged is something other than what these early, these early communities were practicing, and so created a kind of skeptical atmosphere, right, in the churches. So, you know... Uh, then there was the social gospel. is a, a kind of third, third um, um, stream, I guess, that comes into modernism, uh, which is basically uh, an emphasis on Christianizing society. Um, so looking at social structures as the chief thing that's wrong rather than, you know, individual sin, right? So it, it's, again, a kind of a false binary, right? I mean, it's both and, but the emphasis is all on the social structures. So if we can, if we can Christianize the social structures, then everything will be okay, right? So that's a... That's a profound oversimplification, but that's basically the thrust. So all of these three things converge in what's called modernism, and it, modernism is really the attempt to adjust Christian, Christianity to um, modern life, modern societies, modern intellectual currents. Um, and there's a number of very prominent clergy and seminaries that go in this direction. You know, one of my favorite quotes of all time, because just the audacity of the 19th century sometimes stuns me, but there's a professor, I forget where he was, uh, maybe at Bangor Seminary, uh, but he, his name was Charles Augustus Briggs, and he said the church fathers should really be called the church babies because they didn't have the higher criticism. Um, right. Just the audacity of the 19th century. I mean, just, just really bold, you know, really get in there. Um, yeah, but kind of a th thinking that, well, we're more... We've progressed. We've we're, progressed we're evolved. And we 
we're smarter right. than they are. Exactly. Than they were. Right. And so we can use our brains to understand these things and tradition well, you know. Yeah. That's right. It was at an earlier stage. Yeah. It was an earlier stage. They yeah. did the best they could with what they had, but we've so much better now. Yeah. Um, right. So, I mean, that's basically a, a, an overall atmosphere ethos that uh, is, especially within elite forms of Christianity during this time period. So, um, that modernist impulse produces, as you might expect, a kind of a backlash in the fundamentalists. And the fundamentalists start out, a lot of them are, are highly intellectual. So, like people. Uh, so there's a, a document that comes out. The reason it, be called, it became called the Fundamentalists is because there was a text, I think it came out in 1910, called the Fundamentals, which are basically like the core doctrines of the faith, right? And the people who contributed essays to this were like people like the president of Princeton Seminary, B.B. Warfield, and um, you know, the president of Westminster Seminary, J. Gresham Matron, and people like that, who were, high, they were, they were, they were important intellectuals in American society. Um, but the death, after the death of that first generation, uh, fund, the fundamentalist movement became highly associated with more like populist forms of Christianity. Um, it was preserved mostly within like kind of uh, parachurch organizations um, and not mainline denominations. And um, yeah, I mean, it basically spawned a more anti-intellectual kind of theology. Um, and it was associated with very particular things like dispensation, the rise of dispensationalism, which actually comes into existence in the later part of the 19th century, but is given this like new lease on life in the fundamentalist movement. Dispensationalism, for those who don't know, uh, is the understanding that God, when, when God moves in salvation history, what he does is he, he, he acts differently with different people, right? So there's a dis, one dispensation with Adam, and then a second dispensation with Abraham, and then another dispensation, and so on. And these are all like, they're basically kind of self-enclosed periods. They don't really relate with one another. So when a new dispensation comes, the old way of God, God's dealing with the world is over, and the new way has come into existence. So there's a new kind of dispensation with Christ, and then a new dispensation in the church, and in the, the, the church age is like, uh, going to last for a certain period of time, but when it ends, like all of the faithful will be raptured into heaven, and then uh, there will be a, a long period of tribul tribulation, seven years or so, and then God will return, and, and there will be anyway. So, uh, but this idea of like the rapture becomes a kind of critical piece of fundamentalism. Um, now, um, this kind of massive, you know, pendulum swing away from modernism that fundamentalism represents. Um, also gives rise to a form of Christianity that, that highly distinguishes between personal salvation and social justice, right? So these things don't go together. Whereas the earlier evangelicals up, in, up until the early part of the 20th century had, had very much seen these as things that go together, right? Remember that Wilberforce quote, suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners that go together, right? Um, so, you know, Wilberforce is obviously not just it's not just, you know, slavery, it's gin in the cities and the destruction of families that that, that, that creates. Um, like, we're going to get rid of both of those. The, the later uh, fundamentalists would just say it's all about personal salvation, it's all about individual action, right. um, and so have no place for social justice. But um, Anglicans, for, by and large, actually kept these things put together um, throughout the 20th century. So the two most prominent Anglican evangelicals of the 20th century were John Stott and J.I. Packer. Uh, and both of them understood um, both the centrality of the church and its worship, um, so not allowing things to disintegrate into an individual in Jesus, right? Um, but also the need for both evangelism and for social activism. So Stott and Packer were both leaders in the interdenominational Lausanne Conference, which happened in 1974, which first met in Switzerland, and it affirmed the need for a balance in evangelism and the works of mercy and justice. Uh, there's a really good biography of John Stott that was written recently by a guy named Alistair Chapman, 
uh, and it records, he records Stott's memories of the council at Lausanne. So the guy who funded and bankrolled the entire Lausanne conference was Billy Graham. Right? Billy Graham's ministries were very wealthy, lucrative, and had tons of money to be able to throw at this thing. So he's bankrolling this whole meeting, right? And um, on the first night, he says, my counsel is that we stick strictly to evangelism and missions while at the same time encouraging others to do the specialized work that God has commissioned the church to do. So basically to not talk about social justice at all. The Stott stayed awake for several hours that night. This is, this is um, uh, Chapman reflecting on what Scott was doing, uh, Stott was doing. He stayed awake for several hours that night, formulating his response to Graham's proposal. By morning, he had decided to confront Graham, who was bankrolling the meeting and the movement. As business began, Stott stunned everyone by saying he would resign from the committee if Graham's vision for the movement prevailed. Stott demanded that the Lausanne Covenant's emphasis on the social implications of the gospel be reflected in the organization's ongoing work. Okay, so I think that's important, right? I think the fact that Stott and Packer both recognize the centrality of, of you know, what evangelism means is telling people about Jesus and, like, loving justice, doing mercy, walking humbly with God. Um, and so, you know, obviously the Holy Spirit is deeply at work both in this Anglo-Catholic wing and in this evangelical wing in the 19th century. And I think it's a sorrowful thing to be repented of that these divisions prevailed over the unity of the church and these hardening of these parties. And there's still, I think, pretty major differences in emphasis among different Anglican churches. Um, and many of the prior, but many of the priorities that both these people advocated, both these wings advocated for, are expressed in the churches, right? So for instance, like go look at our sanctuary. It looks like an Anglo-Catholic <coughs> sanctuary, um, but our worship is decidedly evangelical, right? Um, and and we, we emphasize a strong tradition of biblical preaching, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, but uh, add to these kind of two streams, right, the, the, the Anglo-Catholic and the evangelical stream, uh, a new stream beginning in the 20th century, which is the charismatic stream. Um, so Pentecostalism uh, begins among the poor in L.A. in the late 19th century, but in the 1960s, it began to cross over into the mainline churches. So um, in uh, 19, I forget, 1967 or something like that, Dennis Bennett, who was the rector of a church in Van Nuys, California, reported that he had been filled with the Holy Spirit and received the gift of tongues. And then almost simultaneously, and definitely without any kind of train of influence, there were priests in England that began reporting similar phenomena, priests in Canada. Um, and the ministry of tongues and healing uh, very quickly became part of the ministry of the majority of Anglican churches over the course of the rest of the 20th century. And that includes at Ascension, right? Um, the previous preceding rector, Doug McGlynn, was big on charismatic gifts. Jonathan accepts them uh, and, and allows them to have a place in, in the ongoing life of our church uh, particularly a healing prayer, um, praying in tongues, and that kind of stuff. Um, so although the manifestations are not as visible as they are in Pentecostal churches, there is a strong charismatic presence in our worship and ministry, and particularly our prayer ministry. Any questions about any of that? Is that really what time is? Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. All right, um, let, me, let me try to get through the rest of this really quickly. All right, so... Uh, the Lambeth Conferences and the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral. So the Anglican Communion begins to take shape in the 18th and 19th centuries, as I said. Um, the church in Canada, church in America, church in Scotland, church in uh, South Africa. Uh, and so institutional channels became necessary to deal with issues that were relevant to the whole communion. And especially as the Anglican Church expanded into the cultures of the global south, which had very different cultural mores than the global north. Um, so the Lambeth Conferences, which began in 1867, were the means that were developed to do this. And these conferences were places where issues could be raised and resolutions passed that would then be accepted um, province by province as the church's mind on these particular issues. Um, 
So, uh, the, again, because it's uh, spiritual interdependence, jurisdictional independence, it wasn't like if Lambda said this, that this became what your, what your province had to do, but it expressed the mind of the church, and typically every resolution that was accepted um, was, was also accepted by the, by the province itself. Um, so, um, you know, the, this, this resolved questions like, what do we do about polygamy in Africa, for instance, right? I mean, that, that's a question that Lambeth had to decide. How does the Anglican communion think of itself vis-a-vis -vis other Christian bodies? Had to decide that question. Um, so in one of these conferences, uh, one of these early conferences, one of the things that the Anglican church was trying to figure out is how do we ecumenically relate with other bodies how do we uh, get to the place where we could possibly practice intercommunion with other bodies, or even, you know, combine, like, and be like one one soul uh, body in Christ? And so, um, there's one American priest, a guy named William Reed Huntington, who devised what he saw as the core requirements that needed to be held by a church in order to be in full communion with the Anglican Church. And it's four things: the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as the revealed Word of God, the Nicene Creed as a sufficient statement of the Christian faith, the two sacraments. Baptism and the Supper of our Lord, ministered with unfailing use of Christ's words of institution and of the elements ordained by him. And lastly, and most controversially, and that which scuttles all of the attempts at union, the historic episcopate locally adapted in the methods of his administration to the varying needs of nations and peoples called of God into the unity of his church. So, Holy Scriptures, Nicene Creed, and the Apostles, uh, two sacraments, and the historic episcopate. So this is kind of a nutshell statement of the doctrine and discipline of the Anglican Church. Simultaneously, what it thinks of as the sine qua non of the faith and also what we can accept as the ground of unity within the church. All right, so that's Lambeth in the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral. All right, uh, Anglicanism in the Global South. Um, so I guess starting point here is to say that Christianity is unique among world religions for um, a number of reasons, but the most um, interesting one, perhaps, uh, for... Uh, the, the, the shape of contemporary mission is the fact that it has never had a single historical center. Um, so it starts in Jerusalem, and then the center moves as Christianity expands. Um, and then Christianity weakens in the places of its historic strength um, and sometimes disappears entirely, right? So like Syria and the Levant, which is now, you know, by and large a Muslim society, uh, Muslim societies, um, were once the heartland of historic Christianity, you know? Um, so... And again, like if you look at Europe and America now, like Christianity is very weak, whereas now its strength are uh, primarily uh, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and increasingly Southeast Asia and, and East Asia. Um, and you know, actually, we don't even have statistics on the number of, of Christians that are in China, but there's like, I mean, the numbers vary between 100 million and 300 million. Like we just don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's just like there's yeah, so many. Um, and there, and there's. I think it's underestimated. Yeah. The yeah. Um, so, it still keeps the, the original society, the church that built uh, like in the earlier like uh, 20th century mm -hmm. that was set up. There's a lot of like churches, like Roman Catholic. In our city, in my city, I grew up, we had Roman Catholic church. Mm -hmm. uh, my middle school was used to affiliated to it. And we also have Anglican church too in our, yeah. in our city. It's a middle-sized city. It used to be uh, like the capital of the province, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, it's uh, just a regular middle-sized city. But yeah. there's still... And all the churches are running. There's a lot of people. Like like the the church that next to my middle school, they just like like modify their buildings. <laughs> which, yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's the building has been there for like over 100 years. So mm. yeah. Mm. So there's a lot of people. So as I understand it, like both the official churches are are prospering. The three self patriotic churches, right? 
they're, they're prospering, but also the bulk of what's happening is in the house churches. Like they're they're churches that are not accepted by officially by the government. Yeah, uh, but they no 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 they are they are officially recognized as a, by the government. They were <coughs> when the, the most of the churches when they set up before like in the early twenties, mm-hmm. the government accepted them. Yeah, like they are like, uh, but they are just not allowed to connect to like the Roman Catholic <laughs> Church. They're not allowed to connect to the right. the Roman. Yeah, yeah. But, but they are still like recognized. They they have meetings and a lot of like the bishop, the archbishop, they have some like government title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, uh, at any rate, the the um the, the important thing for the purposes of this conversation is that um the the, the places of strength of Christianity. Like they change over time, right? Um, and so the, the pattern is like this. Missionary activity brings the faith into a particular cultural context. Um, there's an indigenous kind of Christian culture that emerges within, on that soil, and the, the ta- faith takes deep root and expands in that culture. And then, uh, and then a missionary impulse takes root in that culture, and then they send missionaries to bring the faith elsewhere. Uh, but then the faith in the cultural heartland begins to wane. It becomes weak, and sometimes it even dissolves entirely. <laughs> Um, so as the faith uh, originated in Jerusalem, became strong there, it then moved to Antioch and the whole Mediterranean basin, especially Western Asia and Northern Africa, and that's the original heartland of Christianity. Uh, almost all the important early Christian theologians are either North African or West Asian. So, you know, Tertullian, Origen, Augustine are all, and Cyprian are all North African. Uh, Basil the Great, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, they're all West Asian theologians. Um, but Christianity weakens to the point, almost, but not quite, to the point of extinction in those locations over the course of the medieval period as those territories are, are conquered predominantly by Muslims. Um, so the 20th century, uh, as Scott Sunquist, a missiologist used to teach here at PTS, has said, was the unexpected Christian century because it's, it's the century within, we saw, within which we saw the greatest kind of translation of the strength of Christianity from one place to another. Um, there was an almost, uh, almost in, uh, entire totality transfer of Christian strength from the, from the north to the south. So when the 20th century began, 80% of the world's Christians were in the global north, such as Europe and North America. But by the end of the 20th century, the figures were almost exactly reversed. And that's partially because of the decline uh, in the heartlands of Christianity, but mostly because of the massive explosion of Christianity in the global south, right? And the growth is as nowhere as visible as it is in, in sub-Saharan Africa, which from the years 1960 to 2000 went from 9% to 45% Christian. It's almost like the vision is almost like somebody squeezed a balloon, right? So it's like all the air was up here, and you squeeze the balloon, and it all goes down here. Um, that's, that's kind of what happened with global Christianity. Wow. So Anglicanism has been shaken to the core by these trends. Uh, the global North churches by the 1960s were really in a free fall or decline, both doctrinally, numerically, and in terms of cultural importance. Um, and uh, in large part, this, this uh, comes from a refusal of these churches to submit themselves to the scriptures and a refusal to practice discipline um, where uh, d- defections from the scriptures were happening and a capitulation to the spirit of the age. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where Anglican churches are most vibrant now is really in sub-Saharan Africa. Bishop Grant, uh, you know, worships here, has uh, claimed that um, sub-Saharan Africa has, has a claim to being the most evangelized place in the entire world at the moment. Um, and so no province is actually more vibrant in the Anglican Church uh, than Nigeria, which at present boasts over 20 million people uh, in its, among its ranks. Um, and you know, contrast that to the Church of England, which is statistically the largest church, but it reported in 2016 that attendance was below 760,000 on Sunday. So a, a massive kind of collapse. Uh, and the last thing is um, GAFCON, the Jerusalem Declaration, and the ACNA. Uh, so that kind of brings us to where we are now. Uh, the massive decline in the Episcopal Church 
uh, is in large part, as I said, traceable to its refusal to adhere to its own doctrine and discipline, mm-hmm. and to exercise discipline when that doctrine is, and discipline was violated. And um, you know, although the breach between um, between the global South, uh, the bishops of the global South, and the Episcopal Church is traceable to 2003, when Gene Robinson was consecrated as the bishop of the Diocese of Newark, there's a long prehistory before that 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 gives rise to that possibility, even. Um, and it involves things like uh, the denial of the resurrection of Jesus and the importance and centrality of the Trinity um, that various bishops and priests uh, said with impunity over the course of those of those years. So I, I think it's it's difficult that that's the that's the straw that broke the camel's back, but it's what it is. Um, so in 2003, when Gene Robinson was consecrated, many of the, glo- the bishops in the global South no longer trusted that. Um, that the Lambeth conferences could do the work to um, actually speak the mind of the church uh, to the whole communion. So before Lambeth 2008 took place, these bishops convened an alternative meeting in Jerusalem called the Global Anglican Futures Conference, and they invited clergy and bishops from the newly formed uh, jurisdictions that they had formed within these different countries, So, um, especially America and Canada. So um, after 2003, a lot, of these, a lot of these provinces, Nigeria, Sudan, uh, Kenya, Rwanda, all created like little outposts of their own churches in America, and they called these missionary jurisdictions. So they invited the bishops and the priests from these different missionary jurisdictions to come to to the GAFCON conference in Jerusalem. And so out of this conference came a document that's called the Jerusalem Declaration, which you can read online. Um, And it basically outlines um, the foundations of what is authentic Anglicanism. It says the 1662 prayer book is normative, um, it outlines, you know, what unites us as a tradition, um, and it also it also addresses the pressing issue of human sexuality. Uh, so all of that's in the Jerusalem Declaration, uh, and it also spawns the Anglican Church in North America. The Global Anglican Futures Conference does. So uh, these Global South bishops uh, have pressed Archbishop Justin Welby to fully recognize the ACNA and to discipline both the Church of England and the Episcopal Church, but we're not confident that this will actually happen, and the future is yet unknown. Um, Lambeth was actually uh, postponed for a couple years until we could figure some of this stuff out. And just recently I read that the Global South bishops that are responsible for GAFCON are refusing to attend. So that's not a good sign. Um, but what's interesting is that, that um, there's this profound shift within Anglicanism itself. Like GAFCON happened earlier this year, and Jonathan was, was a delegate to it. And when he, there was a picture taken of, of all the delegates at GAFCON. It's a sea of black and brown faces and very few white faces. And that's really the present and the near-term future of Anglicanism, right? Uh, and along with that, like, you know, uh, the Diocese of Singapore is doing amazing things in, in Asia, and have, they've grown by 500,000 uh, Christians in the last 10 years, which is, I mean, last 20 years, which is pretty amazing. Um, so, again, the expansion in the global south is remarkable. So it can be, I think, a daunting thing as we think about the resistance of our own culture to Christianity, but I think um, as we look at what's happened historically, what, how God has kind of used Anglicanism and how he continues to work in the global south in Anglicanism and through this tradition, um, we, can, we can be emboldened by that, right? I mean, the nations have seen and they believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they've seen in Anglicanism an excellent way uh, to walk in, in the way of Jesus. And, uh, and I, I think it gives me courage, at least, that, we can, that, that Christianity can be revived among people of the Americas.